Let me pause to take a sip of this tea. Mmm. Oh my gosh. That's a little mini version of what I experienced just before um, doing this segment. Um, I've got this large coffee mug. Um, and it's really like cowboy sized and it's, it's made of sort of like kind of a finest China, but it's relatively sturdy. Um, and it holds a lot of coffee and it's got a big diameter. And when you go into that cup, you experience the, all of the pleasures, all of the senses come alive, so to speak, at least your sense of smell and first off and your sight everything everything all all uh, kind of works together there and then you just enjoy that first sip and we've all been there of our of our chosen uh, beverage um, and my libation right now is a hot uh, for the last only really um, well here's the thing I, I feel I'm gonna be on a a kick here. This is like a kind of a groovy thing. There's really great choices in your neighborhood supermarket or even convenience store um, or CVS um, or your, your your Walgreens down the street or your Walmart up the hill there. Uh, you've got all these places you can try compare pricing but you can always land on a tea you like, whether it's a black tea, a green tea. Uh, what I'm drinking now is a ginger, ginger turmeric, turmeric, turmeric um, tea blend. Um, it's really very tasty. Um, I need to put honey in it, and I make it right at that sweet threshold that seems to be right, and I seem to always hit it kind of pretty accurately. Um, and so I like that. And yeah, and yeah, the big mug really does make a big, big difference. Um, it kicks it up, it kicks it up, you know. Um, I like, I'm, I'm digging the ritual. Um, I'd like to get, explore loose tea. I know it tastes different. I've been in tea bars, um, in the area. Um, mm. yes, yeah, very satisfying, uh, cup of tea right now for me uh, in this unlikely time of right around noontime but I'm trying to conserve on my caffeine uh, my uh, my uh, coffee I, I'm low and I'm not going to be able to pretty much get a new another bag till Monday so I got to make the one I have work um, but I like the tea uh, it's probably better if I drink more tea than vice than the other way around. Um, I will probably never replace. It'll never replace coffee. I would. I would imagine it wouldn't, because um, I love coffee so much. And I really lately of late I've been drinking late in the day. Uh, my cutoff is my cutoff is has now been like I'm trying to hold it firmly at four o'clock. Uh, and it doesn't seem to bother me uh, when I go to bed for sleep. Um, it really, so that's the reason I can drink it that late. Beyond that, I just don't want to chance it. I've drank late, I've drunk, I've had coffee that late, 
uh, later in the evening even. Um, and, uh, you know, if you're at a dinner party, it's nice to have a cup of coffee. Um, and everybody seems to be want a cup of coffee and they don't want decaf. Uh, they want a, a straight cup of coffee. Um, and they enjoy it and it's nice and it's nice company. But when you're alone, and in this case, presently, with a cup of uh, a generous mug, a generous mug of this offering of uh, herbal tea today. Um, it's an herbal tea. I think it's going to be an herbal tea thing. Uh, this again, there's a lot of choices out there. Ah, some more expensive than others. Um, you can kick. You can kick to the one that you like. You can try the, maybe there's a couple different flavors you like. Um, but you wanna get, you wanna get a good, good brand. You want, you want organic if you can find it. Um, you want, um, and you, you also wanna look for, you know, obviously the, the big players that you can go to. Uh, there's, there's a couple of them out there. Um, and then, uh, uh, also, any you know, sampling, checking out, um, uh, and then making that part of your tea diet, exploring the whole world of black tea. Because I think there's much to be said about black tea. It has an incredible, rich history. Um, it, it, green tea, of course. There's incredible green tea. It's 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 great to see green tea. I went through a green tea kick with the, with the with the uh, tea bags. Uh, it was working with my schedule. Um, I felt at the time I needed to really cut back on coffee. It, for the most part, replaced my coffee um, for a while, um, and I I looked forward to that cup of green tea, and then I got a little tired of it really. Um, and then uh, started gravitating to the black teas, the red teas, but particularly the, the good old black teas, you know. Um, was not adverse to putting in a, a, a salata tea bag and letting that steep and then coming back a few minutes later and enjoying your cup of coffee, I mean your cup of tea. Uh, tea is, is, is a huge industry. Um, it's fit nicely in American culture. Um, it 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 uh, it takes uh, it takes second place to coffee as the the beverage of choice. It seems to be, uh, but tea is rising in the ranks. There there are now uh, in the news you read about, um, and it's cool to see tea clubs in different countries different languages and different cultures entirely, adopting, uh, it's pretty cool, adopting the, uh, the British, the British uh, uh, ritual behind afternoon tea. Uh, so when four o'clock rings in these countries, uh, they take their pause for this, for this uh, rather formalized ceremony. Uh, you know, it really is, and it's kind of interesting to see. Um, England is probably our oldest Western culture. 
outside of India um, being considered part of the West, if you do consider it, even though it's the Near East, geographically, it's a Western, it's a Western democracy, uh, Western, Western country uh, in that sense. So we put it in that category. Of course, tea imported into European countries, and in particular England, and the effect that it had on, on England uh, culturally, how they adopted uh, uh, this, this, new, this new spice, this, this, new, this new beverage called tea. And it must have been really a revolution of its own. Uh, and it was a, uh, it had implications uh, politically. Uh, tea, tea is, is important. Tea is, an, is our most important, when you think of it, historical beverage. Tea, everything was based on tea. There's so many examples of tea. Uh, uh, tea as, as what, the, as the, you know, the tariffs on the tea during the revolutionary times. Uh, the struggles and everything that offshooted from that very important uh, thing. Tea was taxed. We didn't like taxes. Uh, we revolted. Uh, it got to the point where we revol revolted, uh, and uh, we physically got out on the, out on the, on the street um, and became uh, became uh, farmer soldiers. Uh, you know, uh, shopkeepers, uh, soldier, um, so many different uh, lifestyles coming together, converging, and 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 all the roles, the the roles that uh, that these events played. I mean, how they played out, but also how one thing one thing affected the other. I don't tend to think about that kind of thing when you drink tea or anything, for that matter. Uh, I don't get into that whole thing too much. I'm experienced, but it does help me to get sort of more into the moment. A cup of tea really does do that. Uh, there's, there's a little bit of ritual behind it, and um, you know, uh, and then and then you can sit with it, and you can just enjoy it, um, and it could be really, 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 really quiet, um, and it could just be one of those times where you say, "Wow, this is really the perfect moment to sit down with with tea." Um, I I I think I can see myself drinking more tea, um, um, and trying out you know, uh, checking out the offerings. Um, yeah, I think, I think I might add that. I might add that um, to my list uh, for consideration. And I will probably continue, like I said, to have coffee, uh, drink coffee and enjoy it. Uh, and I also want to help it's really cool that it's it's in the moment kind of thing with these with these kind of rituals that we have 
that we make during the day for ourselves and um, to pass the time. And the time does seem to, to go by a little quicker. You know, when you check the clock later, you're surprised how, how late it is in the day. Uh, and, uh, but it's good. It's good. It means that you're busy. And being busy um, is, is a good thing because it's productive, of course. Uh, you're, you, you can get really in, in the zone, which is also very good. Uh, you're, you're, you're also fostering relationships if you're working on uh, projects for, for people. So all those good things um, come out of it. And it's centered around enjoying a beverage, taking a break to enjoy a beverage, uh, taking time out to en enjoy your favorite beverage. Let me pause to take a sip of this tea. Mm. Oh my gosh. That's a little mini version of what I experienced just before um, doing this segment. Um, I've got this large coffee mug um, and it's really like cowboy sized and it's it's made of sort of like kind of a finest china, but it's relatively sturdy. Um, and it holds a lot of coffee. And it's got a big diameter. And when you go into that cup, you experience the, all of the pleasures. All of the senses come alive, so to speak. At least your sense of smell. And first off, and your sight, everything... Everything all all uh, kind of works together there, and then you just enjoy that first sip, and we've all been there of our of our chosen uh, beverage. Um, and my libation right now is a hot uh, for the last only really. Um, well, here's the thing: I I feel I'm going to be on a a kick here. This is like a kind of a groovy thing. There's really great choices in the neighborhood supermarket or even convenience store um, or CVS um, or your, your your Walgreens down the street or your Walmart up the hill there. Uh, you've got all these places you can try compare pricing, but you can always land on a tea you like, whether it's a black tea, a green tea, uh, what I'm drinking now is a ginger, ginger turmeric, turmeric, turmeric um, tea blend. Um, it's really very tasty. Um, I need to put honey in it, and I make it right at that sweet threshold that seems to be right, and I seem to always hit it kind of pretty accurately, um, and so I like that. And yeah, and yeah, the big mug really does make a big, big difference. Um, it kicks it up. It kicks it up, you know. Um, I like, I'm, I'm digging the ritual. Um, I'd like to get, explore loose tea. I know it tastes different. I've been in tea bars um, in the area. Um, mm. Yes, yeah, very satisfying uh, cup of tea 
right now for me uh, in this unlikely time of right around noontime. But I'm trying to conserve on my caffeine, uh, my uh, my uh, coffee. I, I'm low, and I'm not going to be able to pretty much get a new another bag till Monday, so i got to make the one I have work. Um, but I like the tea. Uh, it's probably better if I drink more tea than, vice, than the other way around. Um, I will probably never replace, it'll never replace coffee. I would, I would imagine it wouldn't because um, I love coffee so much. And I really, lately of late, I've been drinking late in the day. Uh, my cutoff is, my cutoff is, has now been like, I'm trying to hold it firmly at four o'clock. Uh, and it doesn't seem to bother me uh, when I go to bed for sleep. Um, it really, so that's the reason I can drink it that late. Beyond that, I just don't want to chance it. I've drank late. I've drunk, I've had coffee that late, uh, later in the evening even. Um, and, uh, you know, if you're at a dinner party, it's nice to have a cup of coffee. Um, and everybody seems to be want a cup of coffee and they don't want decaf. Uh, they want a, a straight cup of coffee. Um and they enjoy it and it's nice and it's nice company. But when you're alone, and in this case, presently, with a cup of uh, a generous mug, a generous mug of this offering of uh, herbal tea today. Um, it's an herbal tea. I think it's gonna be an herbal tea thing. Uh, this, again, there's a lot of choices out there. Ah, some more expensive than others. Um, you can kick. You can kick to the one that you like. You can try the. Maybe there's a couple different flavors you like, um, but you want to get. You want to get a good good brand. You want you want organic if you can find it. Um, you want um, and you you also want to look for, you know, obviously the the big players that you can go to. Uh, there's, there's a couple of them out there. Um, and then uh, uh, also any, you know, sampling, checking out, um, uh, and then making that part of your tea diet, exploring the whole world of black tea. Because I think there's much to be said about black tea. It has an incredible rich history. Um, it, it, green tea, of course, there's incredible green tea. It's 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 great to see green tea. I went through a green tea kick with the with the with the uh, tea bags. Uh, I was working with my schedule. Um, I felt at the time I needed to really cut back on coffee. It, for the most part, replaced my coffee um, for a while, um, and I. I looked forward to that cup of green tea, and then I got a little tired of it, really, um, and then uh, started gravitating to the black teas, the red teas, but particularly the the good old black teas. You know, um, was not adverse to putting in a, a a salada tea bag and letting that steep, and then coming back a few minutes later and enjoying your cup of coffee. I mean, your cup of tea. 
Uh, tea is 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 a huge industry. Um, it's fit nicely in American culture. Um, it 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 uh, it takes uh, it takes second place to coffee as the the beverage of choice. It seems to be, uh, but tea is rising in the ranks. There, there are now uh, in the news you read about, um, and it's cool to see tea clubs in different countries, different languages, and different cultures entirely adopting. Uh, it's pretty cool adopting the uh, the British, the British uh, uh, ritual behind afternoon tea. Uh, so when four o'clock rings in these countries, uh, they take their pause for this for this uh, rather formalized ceremony. Uh, you know, it really is, and it's kind of interesting to see. Um, England is probably our oldest Western culture outside of India. Um, being considered part of the West, if you do consider it, even though it's the Near East, geographically, it's a Western, it's a Western democracy, uh, Western, Western country, uh, in that sense. So we put it in that category. Of course, tea imported into European countries, and in particular England, and the effect that it had on on England. Uh, culturally, how they adopted uh, uh, this this new this new spice, this this new this new beverage called tea, and it must have been really a revolution of its own. Uh, and it was a uh, it had implications uh, politically. Uh, tea, tea is, is important. Tea is, an, is our most important, when you think of it, historical beverage. Tea, everything was based on tea. There's so many examples of tea. Uh, uh, tea as, as what, the, as the, you know, the tariffs on the tea during the revolutionary times. Uh, the struggles and everything that offshooted from that very important uh, thing. Tea was taxed. We didn't like taxes. Uh, we revolted. Uh, it got to the point where we revol revolted, uh, and uh, we physically got on, out on the on the street um, and became uh, became uh, farmer soldiers. Uh, you know, uh, shopkeepers, uh, soldier. Um, so many different uh, lifestyles coming together, converging, and 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 all the roles, the the roles that uh, that these events played. I mean, how they played out, but also how one thing one thing affected the other. I don't tend to think about that kind of thing when you drink tea or anything. For that matter, uh, I don't get into that whole thing too much. I'm but it does help me to get sort of more into the moment. A cup of tea really does do that. 
there's there's a little bit of ritual behind it and um you know uh and then and then you can sit with it and you can just enjoy it um and it could be really 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 quiet um and it could just be one of those times where you say wow this is really the perfect moment to sit down with with tea um I, I, I think I can see myself drinking more tea um, um, and trying out, you know, uh, checking out the offerings. Um, yeah, I think, I think I might add that. I might add that um, to my list uh, for consideration. And... I will probably continue, like I said, to have coffee, uh, drink coffee, and enjoy it. Uh, and I also want to help. It's really cool that it's it's in the moment kind of thing with these with these kind of rituals that we have that we make during the day for ourselves and um, to pass the time, and the time does seem to, to go by a little quicker. You know, when you check the clock later, you're surprised how, how late it is in the day. Uh, and, uh, but it's good, it's good. It means that you're busy, and being busy um, is, is a good thing because it's productive, of course, uh, you're, you, you can get really in, in the zone, which is also very good. Uh, you're, you're, you're also fostering relationships if you're working on, uh, projects for, for people. So all those good things, um, come out of it. And it's centered around enjoying a beverage, taking a break to enjoy a beverage, uh, taking time out to en enjoy your favorite beverage. Let's talk about the, uh, the processes that we use to communicate, and let's talk. Let's go. Let's go analog with with the with the lithograph. What's a lithograph? Lith litho. Latin for stone, stone, and lithograph, graph, image. So lithograph, um, it is uh, a principle, it's a study, it's a printing process. Uh, we've all seen examples of it. Um, I, I attempted lithograph in my uh, art school days. Um, I say attempted because I don't know if I ever really mastered it. Um, we were looking for optimum black coverage for the most part. Um, I, in hindsight, I worked with the, um, the whole idea of um, the ink um, not for the most part, covering the image. Um, my, my professor, my art professor at the time, 
Sam Ames um, and a expert master in his own right of printmaking um, and with his principle alone, his principle is pretty simple with when it comes to creating an image using um, a stone and that would be a flat stone on a press and that would be the, to get a silky satiny black coverage because with the full black coverage is your, is your full intended image for the most, for basically. And um, this intended image uh, is, is um, what's the word, is, uh, is a really, well, it's a very, very, um, uh, and, and you could happen upon it. You can happen upon it. Uh, and it's a wonderful thing, and that is uh, honest, um, honest, uh, intended image creation. Uh, and then the composition is critical, but the technology is, is really very critical as well. Um, both are very, very important. Um, the creative work um, etched or not etched, but uh, uh, um, crayoned on um, a stone. So you have a stone. It's been it's been uh, it's been carefully uh, as perfect as it can be ground with a special grinder that you rotate uh, over the stone. The stone's about two to three inches thick, generally. Um, it looks like a tablet. Um, it looks like a tablet, uh, you know, and it is, it is usually rectangle. Um, it is usually rectangle in shape, and it is usually um, of a size, let's say, by 12 by 16. So we're looking at maybe a 50, 60-pound piece of stone. Uh, and then the, it would be a... Um, uh, the stone would be uh, possibly granite. Maybe it's granite. Maybe it's a granite stone that you're grinding. Um, you're milling it. You're grinding it. You're 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 creating a, a, a extremely flat as possible surface, an even surface. Uh, a, a you know a canvas now that you can work on, and. You use, you sort of go back to your childhood and you, you use a crayon pen. Um, they're available in art stores, uh, Michael's, Hobby Lobby, places like that, um, that you can um, pick up, uh, pick these up, items up. They're not too expensive. The apparatus, of course, is the cost. Uh, I was lucky to uh, experience art school um, and everything that went along with it. And my favorite, my, one of my favorite subjects was lithography. Even though it created that elusive challenge, um, it's really, uh, once you hit upon it, I imagine it must be pretty good. Um, but it takes practice, it takes practice. I think my first images were um, just uh, pitiful. 
Um, the <clears throat> so the pen, the crayon pen, uh, it's actually a pretty refined kind of thing. It looks like a, a thick leaded pencil. And um, it looks like one of those kind of jumbo pencils that you'd have, like really soft lead, that kind of thing. Um, so you could do relatively good detail. And I saw my other fellow art students do some, achieve some really great results um, because they put the time into it. I rushed mine. I was looking forward to running the, I, I was more interested in actually printing it. You know, that was the fun part really for me. The image was sort of like a necessity. It really was at the time. But I did, I did manage to uh, put out some, some series, some, some series of lithographs that were related. Um, the attempt was to run about 20 of these or so and have a consistent run. Uh, you're, allowed a, you're allowed the first few to be sort of like proofs and they, uh, they're, not, they're not the other kind of proof, but they would be like a proof uh, in the process of it, the first stage where you're kind of getting the ink down. Um, you had to get the ink really evenly put down. Everything had to be done in an evenly manner, in an even manner. Um, it, was, it was that kind of discipline. And it taught me a lot of things. It taught me a lot about patience, really. It taught me a lot about delayed satisfaction. I think it helped me with that, at least. Art school was invaluable for me at the time, and I'm glad I made that choice. I'm glad I made that choice. Um, it probably was inevitable. Um, it probably was an inevitable kind of thing. Uh, and then, uh, and then you know, incorporating self-taught principles um, that you can continue on if you don't have the money to continue taking courses, uh, which you'd love to do, really. Self-improvement and all that's fun stuff. Uh, and, yeah, and you get to meet people and do things that way. Um, and then... Um, in person, you know, in person's always cool. Watercolor groups, those are great groups. But with printmaking, it's, a, it's different. Printmaking gives you the power to reproduce multiple images. That's the main image. That's the main, that's the main shouting cry of, of printmaking. The power of multiple image and multiple image, uh, ultimate, multi, multiple image, uh, um, the whole everything that goes along with printmaking, um, it's 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 actually very engaging. It's very engaging. Um, silk screening, different, different, different. But the high contrast, uh, uh, the simplicity, the high contrast. Um, uh, simplicity of, of those processes, those printing processes. But the idea that you can make, you know, we, you can make many of these images exactly the same. So I, I had done some pretty good runs of uh, press runs um, of these um, images I created, and um, they were. It, they were attempts to achieve a black. Um, so most of my images are on the dark side. 
Um, how do you achieve the black when you're actually creating the image with the um, pencil or, or crayon, black uh, wax crayon, um, black wax crayon? Where, when, you, when you make the image with a lithograph, is the image that you're putting down a direct positive or if you leave the sky blank, does it come out black, for instance, when you, when you take your sheet off the press and examine it? Is it, black, is it a black sky or is it a white sky? What's, 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 uh, what's the deal there? Because you have to know that negative positivity aspect. It can save you a lot of work. In this case, it's going to save you a lot of work. Because where you don't, it's actually, it's really actually perplexing, <laughs> the process, but it's actually straightforward. And that's the cool thing about lithography. There's, there's mysteries behind it. And there's technology. And there's all these kind of cool things that come together in, in one kind of like simple art form. It's very it's either black or white or shades of gray, for instance. Um, this is color lithography, not even including color lithography. We're talking black and white. Uh, the first images created were most likely that. And, um, and, and my series in art school uh, were kind of like gallant, relatively gallant um, attempts uh, to create a consistency um, and um, you know uh, be able to be able to kind of like follow what the the, the pro professor's principles were for a fine image or images series of images uh, the goal of keeping each image as consistent as today, if you wanted to use an offset press, the consistency of that of that apparatus, uh, you the, the lithograph was used commercially uh, before the metal the onset of the metal plate in printing for the most part. Um, the the transition must have been enormous. Um, uh, the the stone product. Uh, and other similar uh, products used in in lithography um, uh, were the forebearer were the that, that was the way that we printed uh, if we wanted to make a lithograph um, if we wanted to make a letterpress image uh, a lot of print shops had letterpresses. Um, and these print shops could uh, print you on the letterpress because it had a quality where you could uh, number it. Uh, it was good for things like raffle tickets. Um, and it was probably good, I would imagine, for train schedules um, that everybody had back then um, on, on sort of a colored cardboard, let's say. Um, and that would be the menu of items um, that you could carry around with you and reference. And you, the trains generally, I'm sure, ran on pretty good timetable. Uh, 
and uh, that was important. So the letter press for that, the offset press for that, certainly, the offset press. But the letter press uh, was needed for certain kinds of things. Today it's used as a novelty, a uh, very effective novelty if you want that old world look. Um, you would go to a letter press, it's expensive. It's expensive, and you, you have to do, it's de rigueur that you run it on a suitable uh, st uh, sheet, a, stu a suitable stock, um, a heavy, heavy suitable card stock, for instance, uh, for, let's say, uh, your, um, your uh, baby shower coming up. Uh, you want to do a little different letterpress effect. You want to either create it on the computer, but you preferably want to actually run it on a letterpress, which would entail a little bit more effort on your part. A little more effort on your part. But, and more, a little bit more money out of your wallet. Um, but, uh, although it might blow a month's budget, let's say, for those kind of things, it would be kind of certainly well worth it. Um, there are so many great examples of letterpress out there, uh, letterpress uh, work. Um, lithography, commercially, like I said, worked really well when printers wanted to attempt uh, real tonal quality in their illustrations. Because with the crayon, you can, by using pressure, um, or, 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 or uh, continuing to draw with it in, a, in, a ref in, a, in, a, in an area there with a wide enough pen, um, or, I'm sorry, a wide enough, uh, a wide enough uh, crayon, black crayon, that you uh, get a nice tonal quality, like let's say a 30% black uh, image, uh, uh, coverage, and that's going to be necessity for a scene, for an outdoor scene, for example. Um, and then you're going to you're going to use your blacks for the outline of a building or maybe a tree, and you're going to use blacks for the ground. You're going to have uh, you're going to need to basically draw it as you would see on paper. That's the real true other glory besides the actual printing with multiple image. Um, that I mentioned earlier, and that's the total quality of lithograph and the fact that you can draw it like you're looking at a, a drawing paper. It's it so you're seeing what you see is what you get in lithography for the most part. Um, it 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 requires certain disciplines come into play uh, with with that process. Um, the teachers were usually gave you a lot of autonomy. Um, my themes were my themes. We weren't instructed really what to do. Um, but we had some real good examples of what it was and sort of like go-throughs of what the process was. So there, were, there were steps that you really had to kind of follow. Um, and this was all the the whole goal of multiple images and and consistency of images um, and the uh, elusiveness of it, of, 
of the, the elusiveness and the mystery. The mystery that behind it. The intrigue sort of behind it. Um, each, each attempt at a new image with a new stone. Um, you know, uh, and the idea that you could take that stone and put it on the press and pretty, you know, five minutes later you'd be running your uh, beautiful papers that you had picked up at the art store of beautiful uh, French-made uh, uh, letter uh, uh, lithography paper. Um, maybe you got a few sheets, you know. Maybe you got a bright white one. Maybe you got, maybe you got a couple of off-white one. Uh, maybe you got um, so you you got a little bit of different kind of like kinds of paper, different textures, you know. Um, and then you try it and you see which one works. Uh, and then you might strike out, but you might hit one. And your chances are you're going to hit one because the papers are, are handmade for the most part. Um, they're, they're for the most part, and they're, it's part of their process, their ethos. Um, and that these, these European uh, pre, uh, paper makers, paper manufacturers for that kind of thing. Um, you got to store them carefully. You know, you got to you got to keep keep them at a good moisture. All these things you got to consider, and most of it's fairly easy. Most of it's fairly easy and and, and relatively low maintenance. Um, but you want to store your papers carefully. Uh, you want to make sure your your ink your um, your uh, uh, grease pen, I should say, your grease pen. That's what they call it. Your grease pen. Uh, is a good edge, a good tip on that. And then maybe you've got a couple others that can cover large areas uh, where you need that deep, deep, satiny black. And if you can get that black, then you've captured your whole image. You've gotten everything caught. Everything's right there, just by, just by the way it is. Um, you, you get into that kind of groove and I got into those grooves I was really really I really looked forward to my class working with my my grinder um, learning learning patience uh, you know um, learning to uh, being open to seeing other people's ideas you know um, being opening being less jaded about things I think that kind of helped um, so productive. It was fun. I went to most of my lithography classes. My teacher was great. Uh, really tall guy. Um, real, very good at, at delivering those satin blacks. It's such a prosaic goal, but it really, it's really kind of the elegance of it. Uh, sort of the, the Chinese or East or Asian kind of a way of approaching it and it's total it's it's can be total zen you know it's mechanical it's a mechanical activity and art it's technical it's technical uh, but it's also tactile it's also a tactile um, uh, thing um, working with with the hardware for instance the press itself uh, first of all, looking at it and the, the sheer size of this press, um, the the pressure that it's going to put to run that 
to slide, to actually put the paper carefully on the stone, evenly, carefully, really, um, and then smaller than the stone. I got to say, you should make your paper smaller than the stone. Uh, if you want to create a stone image on your art and have some matte area, that's totally your call. Uh, we can do those things in, in art. It's the kind of cool thing about art. Um, whatever, whatever really floats your boat, run it, run with it. I would say run with it. Um, and then, you know, you never know if you might be hanging these up in the gallery or in just enjoying them, you know, and maybe framing them and keeping them, you know, and um, certainly uh, lithography, printmaking, uh, other disciplines, the 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 uh, whole timeline, the whole timeline of it, where you are when you're running a lithography, a, a, a lithograph, what period in time, you know, um, what period of time for the lithograph, what where, when when is the onset of lithography, um, how does lithography carry itself into um, the popular culture? How is it, how is it justified? How is it relevant? <clears throat> um, how long will it be relevant? Is it still relevant? Uh, really good questions to ask uh, surrounding simply a way to uh, visually communicate to others. Um, it's, you know, um, it's something that can be very rewarding. Um, it can be really, um, really, you can really see some real, real achievements. Um, you can either notice these achievements right away or you can ponder on it later and realize that you did have some breakthroughs. You did have some little breakthroughs. You did have some little revelations. You know, and when you know it at the time, you know, when I try to paint, I try to just focus on painting, but my wa my mind wanders. I just can't help it. I look at my cats while I'm painting. Uh, I look at my cats maybe to get a little bit more inspiration if I need some more. But I know when I started, I had the inspiration that I needed to start. Um, and so I have... I have the idea, I have maybe formulated, started to kind of formulate loosely how I'm going to execute that idea. In class, when we sat down or to, to roll our, to roll our, grind our stones, which took up a lot of kids' time, young people's times in that time, our classmates, my class, our fellow art students, and, um, in these really kind of loosely structured liberal arts uh, settings and, and ways and principles that kind of like fostered it all. There's a fostering uh, in art school. There's a fostering. There's a, um, there's a sense of um, self. There's, well, there's, a, there's, a, there's an ego, right? And the ego is the art student. It has an ego. But he also learns humility, I think. I think the, I think the art student humi learns humility. 
Um, I learned humility in my not so great attempts at calligraphy. Um, the great, the great art of writing, and that eludes me. Um, some letter forms I can do fairly well. Some words look pretty good when I'm done, but it looks, it still looks crude to me. And I can understand why people that I knew in my life took calligraphy as class and went to all their classes. And they, they, they worked and, and, and really struggled with this. Uh, and, then it made, and then made some real achievements along the way. And then refined their, their art, you know, their way of communicating. And it worked on a practical level and on an artistic level. And it was a work of art when it was finished. And if you achieved it along the way, you were good with it. And you strive to make it perfect. And if you made one that had a little mistake on it, you had to just do it over again. And then you had to do it over again and over again and over again. And that was menacing in a way but you didn't go there. You just did it. You just did it. And I'm kind of lazy, but I was motivated in art school. I was motivated in art school. It created, there was an environment there um, with the vending machines in the hallway, uh, with the lousy coffee um, that I gulped down uh, working on my art project at, let's say, 10 o'clock at night. Literally, we were there into the later hours of the evening for, for a lot of times. Uh, most of the times I went home in the afternoon or went to work, went back, went to work, you know, um, or didn't have classes that day, which was always kind of cool. But I did like going to art school generally. Um, there were challenges in transportation getting there, um, but I... We, I semi-overcame that. Uh, and it, it, it really, really, it was really a, a place to go to um, and for new things to sort of happen, um, to wonder sometimes what the other art students that kind of went into ceramics and, and you didn't really go that route. And in hindsight, you uh, you think back about your art school days and say maybe I should have gone that route. You know, spinning pots that that would be like kind of cool. But you didn't, you know. And why didn't I go into sculpture? I don't know. I did take sculpture in class. I did enjoy it, and I did do some cool things. We did some cool things with sculpture aspects. Um, but I never really took off with sculpture. Uh, so these are the choices that that environment gives you. Uh, it's, it's liberal arts in its um, philosophy. And the teachers all usually can do what they teach very well. Um, some of them are notable in their fields, uh, their fields of study, their fields of studio work. These are all studio guys and, and gals. Um, uh, we had, we had a great, uh, uh, department in ceramics, uh, where I went. We had a great, 
um, department, um, sculptural department. Um, it, it was is good some good sculpture pieces um, that were done, and and good and nice examples of pottery, um, pots and such. Um, and it was fun going to the sales that the students had. And I bought a couple pieces that I still that still grace my house, my home today. Uh, and you know, there's so many other things. Um, I went a little different direction in, in art school, but it was it was I think it was the right choice. Um, I think it was the right choice. Uh, I was fairly engaged most of the time. Um, there's some great memories. Um, there's um, examples of it that I can refer to up in my upstairs closet at any time that I can still refer to and, and feel have that tactile quality and it comes down to these age old uh, age old ways of communicating visually artistically uh, lithograph lithography Lithographic reproduction, um, all of the processes involved in creating an image that you're pleased with, you know, is is really key. I like going into art supply stores. I mean, I have uh, remember going in. Uh, getting my supplies uh, for my art school days, uh, you know, going in there and spending some serious kind of coin. Um, none of the supplies were supplied by the school, uh, except some of the common kind of supplies. But for the most part, uh, you bought your own canvas, you bought your own frames, you, we learned to immediately stretch canvases uh, you could do some pre you could use pre-made canvases, but some professors were very more purist uh, and then to their credit and you learned how to really make a sturdy frame uh, and you learned construction. Mine were uh, sort of crude. Um, I don't think I honed it. Um, I used kind of crude methods to brace it after the fact sort of. Um, although you do see those corner braces used, implemented, um, just for added um, structural integrity. Um, and uh, you, you don't want the canvas to flex uh, because you don't want to crack the paint, you know? Um, and you don't want the um, frame to, uh, you know, uh, make all these kinds of like, you know, like if you were to drop it on the corner, let's say, on a, uh, outside on the concrete, you know, and then distort it that way, you know, throw it off. And you can really, it's difficult really to get it set back, but you can do it. And we had to make those kind of adjustments. But the, mine, mine were, I'd say moderate. They were, you know, um, they were functional. The surface canvas was even, um, uh, and so we began to paint. But we first learned to gesso the paint, gesso it, G-E-S-S-O, uh, -S -S 
It's sort of a, uh, a, a like a whitewash for your canvas. Um, and you can put it on in different kinds of uh, thickness, uh, thinness or thickness, you know, um, by just adding, if you're using acrylic paints, for instance, adding water. Um, and then, and in, in oil translates, of course, being the original uh, format. Uh, format. But, you know, it's a learning curve when you go into, because you learn how expensive these supplies are, as I said. Uh, so our art school days are fun. I used to love going into block art right on, on, on um, I believe it's, uh, that's, what is that, Canal Street? Is that Canal Street? Um, uh, anyway, um, um, and it was, a one, it was a wonderful store. Uh, the, they were generally pretty well stocked. Um, it was, uh, the prices were pricey. Um, but we usually got what we want. And I enjoyed going to the store. So I, I enjoyed going to the store the other day with Janet. We've been there a couple of times to Michael's for me to stock up. And, um, and uh, my friend Gary, he's, uh, we were going there as well. But I haven't painted in, uh, in months, you know. Um, I don't know, four or five months maybe. And so I want to start another canvas. I've got done five so far, um, and they're all uh, medium, small, medium size. Uh, my largest now are 12 by 16. My first painting this is the smallest one, the chair. It's a vertical, um, and it's, uh, that one is 11 by 15 or something like that. Uh, it's, uh, uh, yeah, 11 by 14, 11 by 14. And so, but, uh, the, the stores are fun. And I like, uh, asking the people where the department is. Uh, and it's usually like in the middle of the store and it's got the canvases. You see those, um, uh, I get, my principle is right now what I did was uh, I didn't want to get canvases because I have one already ready to go. Um, and, but I didn't want to get more because for the, for the simple fact that uh, it would, if let's say I, you know, maybe I should have gotten them in hindsight because it would have encouraged me to keep going, but I'm going to hopefully God willing, you know, keep, uh, keep going uh, with with this kind of thing, and it's it's fun for me once I get going, you know. But um, I'm better prepared after this hiatus. I'm better prepared than I was for my first painting, you know, because that had been really a long time, <laughs> and um, I had a lot of doubts and trepidations, you know. Uh, but I guess I persevered. Um, and it was tough. It was tough. Um, gradually, um, with the help of the encouragement of my cats, uh, gradually I began to enjoy the processes more of setting up. That was the hardest part at the beginning with my first painting. Uh, setting up, getting everything ready. You know, buying the supplies is fun. 
So we're in, we're in the store and we're going down the aisle. Uh, and this was yesterday. And uh, we are uh, checking out all things. I look first for the paints that I need. So I need, so here's the paints that I got. And I got the regular available smaller tubes. Uh, I got the large, the, the, the titanium white is in the really big jumbo size tube. But the other three that I bought, I needed four paints. So the, the other three, um, it, it, first of all, I cadmium red, no problem. That was, that was not, that was good. I mean, I, the, the price seemed to make good sense. So I had no problem with the red. The cadmium uh, yellow, on the other hand, <laughs> uh, you know, a little bit of a sticker shock. Uh, a little bit of a sticker shock. I wasn't sure if... I thought the titanium white was the real pricing one. Turns out that's the affordable one. And that's why I got the bigger tube, because I, I, I think I use a lot of white. I'm not going to use a lot of white in this painting, um, but I did get the white to have. So maybe that's a good sign. Um, and then I got uh, burnt umber, and I think that was pretty good price, too. Uh, and then um, I got palette paper uh, pads. So I just got the refills, but the smaller size that they have. Um, and just perfect. I got that. And I think I got, yeah, I got linseed oil. And Janet got some linseed oil. I know that. Um, so we, uh, it was really fun. Um, and uh, I enjoy that part of it. But I also... Thankfully, I enjoy the whole sort of process more. So uh, um, it's easy, easier, peasier coming into this uh, second kind of like uh, uh, section of my kind of like uh, uh, little artistic venture, I guess. Um, and and you learn so much, and then you realize so much that. It's actually pretty cool as when you're painting and you're really into it, you're just really kind of like saying, wow, this is really pretty groovy, you know. I'm glad I started this. You know, I'm glad I got, I, I actually get the motivation to, uh, uh, to initialize this by getting up off my ass and setting up, which I love doing. So my procedure is rather straightforward. I grab the easel I bring that in. It's a tabletop easel, and I put that down. I set it up. Um, I lift up the top support for the frame bar horizontal. I bring that up, um, and then I go and get the canvas that I'm working on, or the new canvas. Um, and then I'll clamp that good. Um, I make sure everything's pretty level. Uh, the an the angle is face is coming up, uh, it's angling up a little bit because it's I'm painting um, higher than the painting itself, so that's all set. Uh, and then I grab my palette paper, like I said, I grab well, no, I didn't tell you that I grab the well, yeah, the palette paper, um, and then uh, and then I also get the lamp. The lamp, which has a story behind it with um, Girly Whirly, 
uh, Lulu, who's on my lap right now, and um, she uh, is totally terrified with the lamp. She gets, she's sort of like that way with a few things that I take out, and they're usually a little bit larger. And he's okay with both of those. Um, yeah, but the lamp, and it's, it's a photographer's lamp, the traditional aluminum, uh, you know, maybe 10-inch diameter with a stand. And I bring that out. It fits really well. Uh, I bring it right up uh, to my work pretty close. Um, and then uh, I get some good light on that. Um, and then I uh, get the brushes out. Uh, then I look forward to getting out my paints that I'm going to use. Um, I have them at the pretty quick and ready. And then uh, I think by that time, uh, well, I bring my glass of water in for drinking. And I bring in the linseed oil if I need it. And then I bring in the, uh, the, uh, the, my, my, not my, um, I'm sorry, my, uh, uh, palette knives, uh, the knife that I have, my trusty one. And, uh, yeah, I think that's pretty much it. I separate my brushes, my big ones from my, my smaller ones. I minimize how many brushes I have out. Um, I, uh, keep as much room on the table, um, as I can that I'm working on, which is my dining room, uh, coffee table. So, uh, but it works really well. And I think it's actually at a pretty good level. And I like my easel, which my sister-in-law lovingly let me borrow. I, well, she gave it to me. And, um, but, uh, and she's going on a venture of taking classes now, which is awesome. Uh, tomorrow, I think, she told me. Uh, yeah. And it's a venture in painting again, uh, new discoveries. It's all really pretty cool. It's all really pretty cool. Um, so those are my supplies. And it, it was just, it was 89-something, $89. Uh, and then um, I, um, uh, and that was Michael's. So Michael's is cool. Uh, Hobby Lobby was good. They had stuff, but they didn't have as much. And they didn't, weren't big on the oils. They were really going full throttle acrylics. I guess acrylics is the new thing now in our busy, fast culture. We want fast results, you know? When you think about it, we, uh, we just want everything really instant and fast. You know, the instant oatmeals. The, um, I get Quaker oats. You know, I get the, I get the uh, pen on the uh, Quaker, the Quaker on the, on the cover. Quaker oats, just your regular round, and I, I love oat. I might even make them. I spent a little while now. Um, I might even make oatmeal a little later on. But uh, you know, yeah, you can get everything at your local art store. Really, think about it. Let's start with just canvas. Okay, you can get that. Artboard, you can get that. Pads. You can get that fine French paper for printmaking. You can get that. Um, uh, even photographic paper, to some extent, with some of these stores. Michael's is a good example of a store that carries a lot of stuff you're really not kind of like interested in. Um, 
but some of this stuff is rather pretty good. But for the most part, you you make a beeline for the art, um, or you ask someone, a nice sales help person, working in the aisle, to point you to the art to, uh, art supply section, and uh, they point to the middle of the store. You venture over there, and then you check out. You know, I need palette paper, so I need. Uh, can I get the same one I had, which was really good? Um, I liked it because it was a photographic uh, gray. Uh, it was perfect for the paints to be set against. This is going to be white, so that'll be interesting to see how that works. Um, I guess it will work okay. Uh, and But the canvas, you know, size that up. Should I get the elite, cheaper one, you know? Should I get the top of the line? Should I get the student grade, which is perfectly fine? Or should I should I get the three pack? Should I get the five pack? Uh, so I usually settle on the singles. And then um, I usually go for the best quality that they have, pretty much. Uh, I don't mess around when it comes to uh, canvas, I guess, I'm discovering. I think right from my first painting, um, I, I got the good canvases. So that's, that's checked off. Um, the paints, I love going through the colors and checking out. Um, <coughs> uh, Sticker Shock, like I said earlier, with the um, cadmium yellow. Um, and uh, they had different cadmium yellows. They were all pricey. This one was $19.99. Um, and it's not a big tube, but it's enough for me to work with. And then when I took everything home, I'm glad I got the white, but I'm not going to need a lot of white in my next painting. Um, it's, uh, I'm, I'm kind of like looking forward to kind of getting, it looks like it could be a really intriguing kind of, sort of in its own way dramatic, I guess. Um, it, it, metaphysical too. Um, I don't know if it's got those influences of Henry Pernardi or Pernardi-esque uh, meta meta metaphysics. Um, and so I've got the painting that I pretty much wanted, the picture scene that I kind of pretty much, that I took a picture of. Um, and I think I'll probably use that. I've got everything I need as far as um, my supplies. I didn't need any brushes on this trip. Um, so I've got good, good variety of what I need for my rudimentary setup. Um, for rather not bad investment, I ventured into like a really fun, challenging, colorful, Compositional uh, appreciation, uh, appreciation of of life, uh, observing life, uh, recording life, um, and setting that uh, those aspects of life uh, in in a genre that you are settled in um, is really a pretty cool thing. I want to talk about Jesus Christ Superstar, the whole phenomenon that happened uh, several decades back. I also want to discuss the 
a little bit about a, what I call the um, the house of mirror effect. The house of mirrors effect. As well as the aspect of being awestruck. And hocus pocus. Not the movie. But more spe specifically entitled hocus focus. And a micro subsegment, let's call it. Um, about cats and a micro micro segment on I love a parade but first up rather I say cheerio I love the Brits and this is actually the second segment that I've done. I did a, a previous segment in my first season. Um, I'm on my second season now, and I am uh, I am coming back to the Brits because I do love the Brits. Um, I'm Canadian French, uh, and I'm proud to say it because very close second, if not, you know, sometimes maybe maybe a first they really are neck and neck is you know is the mother country you know france you know uh i mean two great two great countries france is a republic it's fashioned our a lot of our laws are interchangeable with french law french law drove the, it, its remnants of the french the great french revolution um, it's remnants of all the time that, that's come between, which is a really important time, you know. So many important events happened in the 20th century. And England, you know, parallels that pretty tightly in so many ways throughout history. And these, are, these were warring countries, and these are no longer, thankfully, um, I believe they're close ally, allies, allies and uh, but the two countries really really are kind of parallel like that you know one's a small island nation relatively in, in the whole scheme of things and France is a uh, is a, a Texas size uh, we were always sort of taught that in school it's basically a Texas size uh, which is rather sizable country, especially for Europe. Europe is really made up of a lot of, Claude, my, my brother Claude, my oldest brother Claude points out many, many really good tidbits about things like that. And he pointed out that France, uh, you know, it, uh, has, it has that size relatively, re relative, and that, and that Europe, basically, uh, Europe is a continent comprised solely, uh, mostly of, uh, you know, me small to medium size, you know, the, about the biggest they're going to get is, you know, France and 
you know, uh, you know, it's just interesting to, to. I like to compare. I always like comparing things. I don't know if I'm a comparist, if you could call me that. I don't know if that's an applied thing that you can apply, that you can actually apply and have have a have a you know uh, that kind of a thing. My mom loved the Brits, and she especially loved the uh, the rich history of it, of course. Uh, and then she loved the, and we all love, uh, and, and uh, we can conjure up very fast pictures of of English countryside, of French provinces, you know, of Nice. We can we can picture Nice, um, and we can picture. We can almost feel Nice, even though we have not traveled there, amazingly. And we might be off a little bit. We might be demyst. We may be had many demystifications, which is really cool. I love demystificating things. I don't know if you do. I don't know if that's just a normal process, which would be cool. You know that it's evolutionary. Um, but with the Brits, it's really a cool dynamic. So this small country nation and France, this medium-sized country nation, uh, both, uh, I think France has more people, or I might be wrong about that. England, I gotta check with Claude on that, uh, or Google it. Uh, and I think they're, they're close, but I think England might have the population edge, which would make it a, a rather dense country uh, relative to its, its area, its land area. Um, and we're looking at advanced, cutting-edge, world-class, certainly, uh, uh, kind of cities. These are global cities. I mean, this is what we call them. And these are world cities. And um, we have designations and comparisons. Uh, these are really kind of awesome uh, concepts and applications that you can easily apply. You know, this is not a phone app. This is just an application. Uh, England has a little bit of an edge, although I still have the, the whole mystique of these two countries. I think they're almost on par with each other. And I could probably mention it to some of my family and friends, and they may even concur with that. But France, uh, France has got more land area, certainly. Um, it's spr more sprawling. Um, it's Texas size, so it's, you know, think of Texas, you know, um, everything's big out there. And, uh, you know, um, it has the heritage in the West. And I always kind of like to draw those kind of fun comparisons. But I'm not going there with the West. Uh, my brother Claude would be proud of me because he said, God, you'd be getting off track. So I want to stick with Brit, and I want to stick, I don't even want to uh, talk really that much about France. I really, the impetus of this, and that's why it's the first topic of this segment, um, is, is, uh, is the Brits. Uh, aside from so many contributions, uh, with the help and aid of, and the built-in aid of, um, of, uh, uh, the the fact that we share a, basically a common language, and it's fun to just see the dialects come out. Uh, the Cockney, I love that. I love anything 
the Welsh accent is really great. You see examples of it in movies today. You see examples of it from the, you know, the great uh, British uh, programming that they have uh, today um, and that you can stream. Uh, and then you've got, uh, you know, you get the whole legacy going on there. But my mom, uh, she really kind of like got me hooked on England, I think. We grew up with England when, it, when, I, when I look back because we liked watching TV. We watched educational television. And Channel 2, WGBH, uh, had sort of agreements maybe with the BBC. I don't know how that all worked, but we got some BBC programming, lots of it. Lots of great shows that my parents enjoyed, that we all enjoyed, that we all enjoyed separately or together, uh, that we would readily switch from any of the network programming, even if some of the network programming certainly was very much watchable and maybe we would like to watch it but certainly WGBH Channel 2 Boston and our own local Channel 36 uh, certainly uh, in Providence uh, gave us these incredible British shows especially in the, the, the it all bloomed in the 70s obviously we all know that um an example is the Monty Python. Christmas last, uh, we were gathered at my my um, brother Pierre and Janet's house. Beautiful. We had a beautiful time in their lovely home. And we were talking about Monty Python and the fact that their antics were so really ahead of their time. But I told them that I said, I said, and I really said it state, straightfully, and I will say this. Culturally, the Three Stooges really had an impact in those kind of uh, rich brothers. But, you know, I call out the Three Stooges because they were really the most popular. They were very, very, very popular. They were shown in shorts. I'm sure films wore out. Uh, they were, got scratchy. Today, we look at pristine prints. I can't get over the fidelity, the picture quality of these, uh, of these little um, shorts, they call them, uh, uh, they're really, uh, they're black and white, but they're, it's really, um, it's, they're really well done, too. They're really well produced. Um, I'm noticing that very much. Um, and it's fun to watch these shows. Um, those were network, those were affiliated offerings through network television, commercial television. The, the Three Stooges and Ilk. Um, Marx Brothers movies that's delegated to a late night movie or um, many times we watch those, those that ilk of movies uh, great generation of movies of the late 30s and 40s with my dad on Sunday afternoons it was pretty neat great memories of that um, just you know sitting at the TV on, on a Sunday afternoon with the Sunday paper uh, you know, I can basically picture us now. I was probably on the floor uh, with my elbows up looking at the TV uh, on our wool, our red wool carpet in the living room uh, where we had our TV, uh, as do most people, uh, Americans have in their living room. And, you know, you picture the housewife at the time and my mom, she would have been, you know, in her beautiful 
tight-knit dress, let's say, with beautiful high heels, well, she would be a model for one of the big brands of TVs. And the old black and white ads are even a kick because it's pre-color. I'm very much interested in the whole advent of television, but certainly I'm my specialty at, that I have um, that I like to f always talk about is the transition that the networks made um, in a Herculean kind of really effort to uh, change uh, or transition to uh, uh, color, color broadcasting. Uh, and that, that whole thing about technology and all that fun stuff. But my mom, my dad, us as a family, uh, friends, we'd all watch together those shows like Monty Python. Monty Python's street antics in London hearken to those kind of uh, uh, slapstick comedy uh, shorts of, or feature films um, of the antics of, uh, you know, the Laurel and Hardy-esque um, aspect of movies. And I like the whole process, uh, the whole aspect of seeing something in pristine way, like it was viewed by the original audience. Uh, you could picture yourself in one of the theaters, uh, and it's just really a great experience. And they're really funny. You know, uh, everybody has different tastes. I, I definitely know that. Um, but it's always nice to see people that are indifferent kind of come around. That's always a cool thing. I got that kind of, I like that experience of Grateful Dead, certainly. I always like to see people maybe get turned on by them or, you know, start kind of listening to them more, maybe even just um, getting past tolerating or maybe not listening to them, but appreciating them even, but certainly listening to them. But I don't want to really go off on the dead track right now, so to speak. Uh, my mom, I just want to stay back with the, just quickly about the, the, the BBC uh, Monty Python, they would do anything in the streets of London in their zany fashion, right? We all have seen episodes of them in their, uh, in their white uh, diapers uh, and, and, and air, air, aerator bomber uh, hat on, you know, the fur-lined hat with the flaps, you know, and it's, they're waving as they go down the street. And, and they're just, it's fun. It's all about fun entertainment and aspects and being and entertainment and being entertained. And it's also the dynamics that are really cool that are self-apparent and that we all soak it in, of course, is that the performer is so, so, you know, you think of, you know, you think of the passionate performer that we have, the, the passionate performers we have today. And we have many really, really great performers out there. There really are. Uh, you know, I think we'll always have that that creativity there. But um, the, the performers that were presented on the BBC, for instance, uh, I'm sure BBC had hokey. You know, if we look back, a lot of their program would have been stodgy and hokey back then in the late 60s when the Monty Python troupe was coming up uh, in the ranks. Uh, they got their own show in the late 60s, uh, I think 68 or 69, I, uh, Monty Python's Flying Circus went on the air. And then it came over here, um, you know, 
maybe not even five years later. We had it, um, I'm going to say four years later, maybe even three years later. We started watching it in the early 70s, um, right around the time, they, for instance, MASH started in, 19, let's say, 1972. I was 12. Uh, and so Monty Python, their antics, street antics in London, then talking back about them, their ties with uh, how Hollywood, uh, Hollywood, of course, influenced England, England influenced Hollywood. We, we interchanged. Uh, we shot movies in London. Uh, London productions shot movies in the U.S. Uh, everything was like free flow, which is cool. Um, and we still have always will and still have steadfastly a very, very strong, certainly, <clears throat> so many examples of it, um, a strong legacy of, of being real strong um, uh, partners and ally, allies. You know, that's a good word, ally. It's really a good word, A-L-L-Y. Not alley, right? It's A-L-L-E-Y. No, it's A-L-L-Y. It's a pithy word. Um, and it's sort of one of those words that looks exactly like it should be, is what it means. I did a segment on words that look, and basically words actually come out pretty much, pretty consistently, but also uh, if you're taking out your, your charts here, words, you know, they are all, they all seem to, um, they, 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 when you pronounce them, when you see them, when you see the word, uh, you, you look at the word, you look at the separate letters, but you look at the word, um, the separate letters are important, but, um, cause you got to know how to spell. I, I always spell with syllables. That's always worked with me. Um, the syllable method of spelling. Um, and, uh, but when you examine a word and look at it, and the fun part about it is when you when you look at the word and you actually pronounce it and say it, and you hear yourself say it, uh, uh, and you realize that that word, uh, you know, let's say even just, I'm going to just pick door, you know, door, uh, D-O-O-R, uh, and, uh, and I'm going to use that, and I'm going to say that that word, let me just think about it actually. I might have rushed into this one. Um, no, door, door works too. Most words work uh, where they, interestingly enough, I've, I found out, because um, I like to compare these kind of silly things, um, but um, I find them to be kind of cool. Uh, observations, maybe. It, it's, it's kind of fun, you know. Um, and it's the door meaning, and, and like many of the words like door, like hinge, uh, you know, like um, bark, uh, any word really. Think of bark. It really works. It really, you know, bark really looks like the wood you take off this, or you look at on the side of a beautiful maple tree like I have in my backyard. Steadfastly through time, which is amazing. And you see the wonderment in nature. 
Um, but we, we all appreciated that. We all appreciated comedy. And BBC had really delicate balances in the late 60s. They allowed really liberal programming, um, but really fun, funny. They had to have laughed in the, in the boardrooms uh, on whether to pick up the show in the late 60s. They must have laughed a lot, uproariously, because they, a lot of these guys were sort of, they were creative in a way there too. Maybe stifled in their kind of like stuffy position at BBC at that time, very conservative. You know, think of the British housewife coming out of her row house in Sussex with her handkerchief on, you know, and that's exactly where the Monty Python will travel to. That'll be town that will, they will play up and feature and harpoon. And in their, in their incredible, uh, first of all, acting and neptitude and comedic acting and total uh, slapstick, of course. Uh, and, but it's fun to talk about it. You could kind of go on and on, you know? You could really have a really good conversation about th that kind of thing just right there. And American television, a little later with their transition, their transition in the early 70s with the switchover uh, for uh, networks going a little bit more urban. Uh, looking, at the looking at the Democratic, the, uh, the demographics maps, um, and they, they looked at everything, they studied where the populations were, and they were really, the populations were essentially centered and still are for the most part uh, on the coastal cities, the coastal uh, states. Uh, you know, you think of all the coastal states population. You know, you think of the whole population beginning from, Bort, with, from Boston, Mass., which would include southern New Hampshire, um, taking on that all the way down uh, you know, coming down, uh, let's say, to Atlantic City, and further, actually, further. Uh, so that's a great, it's a great ring there, essentially, of coastal city populations, uh, demographics. And then on the left side, uh, we have that, that, that whole population band. Um, you know, we have all that, all those Western cities population, Seattle, for instance, uh, uh, Portland even, let's include Portland, uh, Portland, Oregon. Um, and then we've got um, all the way working that down uh, through Oregon, uh, Washington, Oregon, uh, Washington at the very tip, uh, the very corner, top corner, left corner, uh, west corner of, uh, of, of our great country. USA. So we've got that uh, state that belongs to the United States of America. <laughs> it's one of the 50 states, and it's there, and it's down below, I believe, is Oregon. Or Oregon, some people say it. Um, some people mock you if you say it wrong. Um, uh, and if you... It, but I think now it's accepted. You can say it either way, but most people say Oregon. And I, have to con I had to condition myself because I was from Rhode Island and we said Oregon. I'm sorry. That's just the way we said Oregon. We said Oregon. Oregon. Yeah. 
uh, and we had our own way, and that was the way it was. That's the way we pronounced things. Yeah. But Oregon, and then, of course, California, which takes up most of the West Coast, certainly. Um, yeah, by far. And, uh, and all the big cities that line there. And, you know, you learn this because you read the news and you see the news, and it talks about voting and where all the votes are, you know, where the, where the Democrats are. And the Democrats lie, and they rule typically in these big, these big, uh, or rather big, uh, medium-sized to big cities. Uh, some Republican, certainly. There's, there's many Republican mayors of big cities. And that's how we're drawing it. We get politics involved. I don't even want to go there. I want to talk about the BBC. I talked about the networks here in the, in the U.S. Uh, at the time. Uh, with us, it was early 70s, our transition, culturally. It went in a revolutionary way through uh, ingenious, uh, very kind of like forward-thinking uh, liberal uh, people producing these television comedies for the most part that influenced us. But the, the, that whole legacy is, is really intermingled with a lot of other disciplines in broadcasting, certainly. Uh, liberal aspects were long into play with, with Walter Cronkite, for, for instance, presenting the evening news on CBS. Um, a mainstay for for, gen, for a generation and and a half. Well, no, two two and a half generations. Yeah, and um, uh, when you think about it, so you had all that Eric Severide, the, the Eric Severide effect, and um, uh, look it up. No, I'm just kidding. There's, I don't know. There probably is an Eric Severide because he was influenced. He was influenced. He, 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 uh, he, influential. He was a commentator, and you had those at the closing of the evening news. Most of the networks had their great commentators, and they were all well known, and they were almost interchangeable, but they had their own kind of unique way to do things. You know, I think of Andy Rooney on 60 Minutes with his segments. You know, uh, everybody's different. That's what you want. Yeah, that's why you like, we love, we, boy, we drank up that shit. Boy, as kids, as adults, we were all together in the living room watching it, shows like Ed Sullivan, uh, you know, the Ted Mack Hour, Geritol, that's all. And, yeah, no, right. No, no, definitely. No, no, it was, it was kind of a groovy thing, you know. And, uh, yeah, so we had that benefit. But we, we, we lagged a little behind Britain uh, just on that one. Uh, but it was a transition. Uh, and and there we, had, we were looking to Britain, certainly. Um, we had references to Britain through our popular culture, of course. Um, uh, not just TV shows, but Brit, Brit, Britain was everywhere. If you wanted to look, if you wanted to find it, uh, everything, you know, everything was everything was glorified. Was made in Britain. Fine china was made in Britain. Uh, fine, uh, just uh, the idea of 
taking a trip to England, you know, whether you whether it's dedicated, you're going to make a short stop in London, but leave the city, leave that huge city, uh, and go out in one of the shires, you know, um, and um, maybe you're going to take a trip. Maybe, for instance, you're going to uh, take you want to take your bike trip, leave your cars in London. And uh, you fly in, you, you rent cars, of course, you need them for your bike. So you're going to take your bike, you're going to take a bike trip with you, your husband, right? And you're going to take it, a nice trip, and it's just going to be you two, and it's going to be all the way to Wales. You're going to take a trip to Wales. Um, and that country is, uh, is a, is, um, from what I hear, uh, is uh, I've never been to Wales. Um, is that um, it's it's really it's really a cool city. It's it's you know it's great when you read stories about these these places. Um, everywhere in the world is really kind of interests me interests me very much. Um, I'm a casual kind of observer. Uh, but I, I can get into more in-depth in analysis. I, I, I like to ponder, you know, um, pondering, you know, pondering, it passes the day. You know, we, we kind of want to pass the day, don't we? We, we, don't, we certainly don't want it to lag. We certainly want, and that brings me back to the Monty Python in a wonderful kind of way because they, the show was so fast-paced. They had segments within the show Great, great, great idea. Uh, they did some outside film segment and inside video uh, segments that that uh, that mocked uh, that mocked freely and ir- irreverently the BBC and 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 and, and, and other uh, great British institutions. Let me tell you about the British institutions, and there's so many examples of it. We see it in um, film. Uh, we, we read it in books. Uh, we see it in pictures. We see it in news events. Uh, that, and, and, and again, France, but particularly England, uh, it, if we can just zone in to, to look at England with a microscope, um, but you will need a bigger apparatus because you've got to see the whole wide view, right? Uh, and so you, uh, you, you, you are now in the, you're on the West, you're West Thames side of London and you're looking at the big Ferris wheel and you're looking at the big, uh, uh, Gherkin building there. Uh, and then you're looking at the, um, the, 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 the museum, let's say, of the, and then you look at the turn, the horizon, and you, you know, you see other things, you know, you know, you look down, you see, of course, Big Ben, right? Uh, and then, you know, you see the whole waterway, and you see the activity uh, of London, and you, and maybe it's a beautiful, calm, and, and, and rosy, uh, late later evening rosy I love that when there's some rosy pink Melba uh, uh, you know all those pink peach I love peach I love that with the blue uh, gotta have the blue sky there too I think 
but um, all that whole thing going on, uh, and you get those kind of views sometimes, and they're magical. They're magical moments to behold, to really behold. You know, because think about it. We, we, I think a lot of times we don't, we look at the sky, of course. You can't avoid the sky, right? On your way to the commute, if you think about it, the sky takes up a lot of your viewing, uh, a lot of your upper viewing, because uh, that's where the sky is, up there. And the sky is all around us. It's the atmosphere. And when we look through the atmosphere, we see the colors miraculously come through. That, that blue color is even, how did, that, how did that come to be? How did blue become so important in our lives? When we look out the window, we see a gray sky. But when we look out the window, we see the blue sky. And a certain kind of cool thing that happens on a beautiful, beautiful morning. Uh, and it's when that blue sky is just really prominent. And it comes up pretty fast, you know. Days really early in the morning, I see that it's going to be a really brilliant day. Yesterday was a real textbook example of a very bright blue day. It was lovely. It was because of the reflection of snow, of course, certainly. Uh, and we still luckily, luckily, uh, even though we got soaked with rain and it was slushy and messy, uh, we, 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 a lot of, we had enough snow cover here locally um, where it's still a good amount of, of snow and it still looks really pretty outside. So picture the really bright blue, blue, blue day. Um, but... Uh, with, with the transitions, getting back just quickly to the transitions, um, where I think important times, uh, and with Britain, with, 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 the, with the Brits, uh, with the Brits, rather, um, uh, and all, all the countries of Britain, of the, of the United Kingdom, um, but it's really great, wonderful influence and uh, the impact um, of England just existing, just being there, just being there. Not just as our allies, but as an example. Uh, a lot like they, you know, they could have their own version of the Statue of Liberty in England, I think. Because England was about liberty. Strict, strict, different from France. France more liberal. England more conservative, for the most part, throughout history. It really did. It really had a very, you know, think about England's harsh history. You know, all its harsh kings. Some good, definitely benevolent kings, but definitely kings with some real issues, right? Um, and then we can, we can go through a list of that. Uh, I don't even have to go there, um, making really terrible decisions, you know, uh, terrible, terrible decisions, uh, and then delusional decisions, right? Uh, examples of that, examples of kings going nuts in their close blood ties, but, but certainly psychological problems with a lot of these uh, a lot of these uh, reigning, reigning lieges, liege, your liege. You know, it comes back, right, elementally, 
to the impetus of this, why I even got uh, picked up the mic to tell you this, and that is um, I like their accent, plain and simple. Uh, I like their I like all the words they use really prominently. I like how Americans use those words. It's cool to see us adopt these words in our regular vocabulary, our regular everyday vocabulary. And the way they pronounce it, how we're different. And we use different words for different things, of course. We all know that. Um, there's so many, so many examples of that. Um, but England and its great monarchy, the tr think about the tradition of the monarchy. You know, it resurged in recent events, uh, in very recent events, actually, when you think about it. Uh, it's that the monarchy, the prominence, the preeminence of it uh, in its own way uh, is, is come back. Now it's kind of, it's on it, it's, it's on it, it's going to be, you know, I'm hoping uh, uh, King Charles will, will, uh, will, will reign uh, thoughtfully. And he already shows to be a really thoughtful person to me on the outset. I kind of always liked him. Um, there's always sort of uh, uh, something going on there. It seemed like to be a little dark side maybe to him that added a mystique, but I still basically liked the guy. Uh, and I thought, I thought he always looked towards good governance in the capacity, of course, that a prince could do. Um, I thought he was, it was nice to see him, of course, with Diana. Um, I think they had a loving relationship, certainly. Uh, and I'm sure they had many good friends that kept him uh, maybe in a healthy way out of that, uh, which probably could have been, for many ruling thing, claustrophobic conditions in, in places like Buckingham Palace, if you can believe that. I, w I would think that there would be some real psychological things going on. Um, first of all, even for the sane, even for the sane uh, 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 heir to the throne, let's say, um, it would be, it would seem to be an overwhelming kind of experience. You know, it would be, it would be an overwhelming experience, maybe. Are they conditioned for it? Are they truly born with a silver spoon in their, in their, in their mouth? Is that what the case is? Uh, if so, uh, let me know. Uh, no, uh, I don't know. I don't know. But I like I like Charles, um, and his whole ceremony was kind of nifty. <laughs> uh, it was, of course, a huge, a huge event. Uh, for England, uh, it brought out the population in a real gleeful, uh, wonderful to kind of see way. Um, and then you can compare it with, you know, so many things happening in, in countries uh, uh, re, re, uh, re-emerging in cool ways. It's kind of cool to see. England had that. England has had many renaissances many renaissances, um, uh, famous re renaissances, less, more subtle renaissances.
but the cultural and the pop culture, which is, I'm always interested in the pop cultural. Um, it's fun. I like to go there. I got great memories of pop culture in the 60s. Um, and I, I always like to, um, like, harken back to that kind of thing. But the love of other cultures, but especially the love of particular cultures, is, is good. And um, uh, my sister-in-law, Janet, said that we were in the car yesterday, um, and she said the word edifying. And I pointed out to her, I said, that's a great word, Janet. <laughs> she said, and she said, she's so, like, modest. She said, I didn't even know the word. I didn't even, she's, like, saying, I didn't even know why I said that because it's, like, she's really cute like that. But edifying, it is a good word. Uh, England always is edifying, a very stoic country, right? Um, a very stoic country. And a stern country, a strict country. Um, and a, but the pop culture, um, the pop culture aspect, um, the gifts that they gave, uh, the influences certainly that led to our great programs that we could enjoy here in the States. Um, and that, that, so that late sixties acceptance by these big British, uh, networks as an example, um, uh, taking in. Uh, it's starting to air, actually air these programs to the general public out there. Free to everybody to see. Everybody with a good antenna could pick up any of the BBC's channels, certainly. And, uh, and then you would see, of course, uh, someone by the likes of, let's say, for example, Chevy Chase coming on at the beginning of Monty Python. Uh, the titles sometimes wouldn't come on till you know, later on in the show. Uh, so you would just have a quiet uh, camera on one to, to John Cleese at a desk. And uh, this is BBC Two, he would maybe pronounce. And uh, you could actually maybe be watching that station. Uh, and that would be on. So adding a sense of credibility, right? Really, really clever. And then, and then proceeding with their uh, onslaught of uh, jabs at, at, at that institution. And, uh, uh, you know, and we watched it and we laughed. We laughed. And they really, they really were groundbreaking. They were really ground, they were all the really great groundbreaking uh, British um, troops. And then the shows that came off from that. And then today's shows, of course, as I mentioned earlier, today's shows, the streaming services that we have, uh, where we can really enjoy uh, with, a, with a bowl of popcorn in front of us, maybe, uh, sharing the popcorn. Uh, maybe everybody's got little popcorn dishes and you, you dole out from the big one. Uh, and it goes down really fast because you're chomping it down as you're really laughing at the same time and the popcorn's getting lodged in your mouth and it falls between your teeth or it falls dreadfully down, halfway down the throat. I mean, partway down the throat. You can feel it. It tickles. Uh, it's a kernel that got stuck. It sucks. You drink Coke. You swash it with Coke and uh, Coca-Cola and you swash that. You try to swallow it. 
in such a way that you dislodge it and it finally goes down and you're like gleeful about that and then you can really go on and enjoy the show, right? But those shows were great and such great influences for us. And music, just think of the great bands that came out, particularly in the 60s. Um, it started in the early 60s. Uh, we were doing the stayed, uh, we were doing the stayed crooner. We were still with the crooner way of doing things, which was perfectly fine. Um, it was very conformist, right? Uh, and um, but good stuff, certainly. But but conformist, you know. Um, and uh, and. Uh, I mean, we enjoyed it as kids. We 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 enjoyed it as kids, um, but I like that whole interchange that we had—the um, trading of ideas, you know—and um, uh, we got we got some great British groups. So many great British rock groups, for instance, um, and um, we got we got to look at their albums and we got to play their albums, um, and. Um, we got them maybe maybe about not even just months after uh, England uh, had them uh, on their charts. Uh, so you had the British charts translating to the American charts, the influence there. How we were very accepting of anything that came over the shore um, and uh, over the pond. And uh, we were, we were, uh, we ate it all up. We ate up all that shit, let's just say. <laughs> and uh, it was all about really good entertainment. And, uh, but rather, Chidio uh, 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 and all that, Pip Pip, uh, I love those. I love those. Um, I love the, the canals in England. Uh, I love the fact that you can be out in the deep woods of England and you could be anywhere, but it's in England. You know, it's in England. And you are like, you're saying, wow, this is really a surprise. This was totally unexpected. You know, and you soak in your hike. You soak in your road trip, right? And you assess when you get back to your hotel room. And you sit down on your bed at your inn, let's say, that you're staying at, your bed and breakfast, in a lovely, absolutely lovely English village. You manage to get right next, right by the, right, very close to the village. You know, a rock's throw from, from really village. And you're right there. And everything's down there. And there's people walking about. Everything really is very nice. And you have that pleasant experience. Shopping. Having a bit of a spot of tea, maybe. Maybe it's late afternoon. Um, maybe you, uh, you're visiting. Maybe you're living there. And you, so you, you're um, certainly watching television in the 60s and 70s. And uh, the, the comedic, the producers of these shows, 
uh, really lively entertainment, um, real, real lively satire and lampooning in the real classic sense. Uh, these guys were real court gestures. We were real court gestures, these guys. Totally irreverent. Totally irreverent. Uh, and that's what made him so great. That's what made him so refreshing, right? And uh, we, we able, we had the talent. We had the talent be in front of the camera and behind the camera to produce great, because of the great talents in front of and behind of camera, said camera, we had great results with our entertainment. And our entertainment was, was genuine. It had its own American stamp on it, right? You know, think of Rowan and Martin's Amer uh, uh, laugh in. That couldn't have been, it just could not have been made anywhere in Eng anything but England and France at the time, really. Uh, really, when you think about it, uh, maybe Germany, yeah. Um, you know, a lot of, no, when you think about it, if you go there, uh, these, these are really kind of like liberal kind of programming. You know, when All in the Family came on in 1971, that premiered with Carol O'Connor and Norman Lear. There you go, before the camera and behind the camera. Before and behind. Uh, and all the great people in that mix. Um, we, 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 we don't go there because we, we're the audience, right? We're, you know, uh, the, the, uh, the machinations of it. We're, we're, we're interested in the actual proofs of the pudding. And it's a British thing, it's a French thing, it's an American thing. It's really a really kind of wonderful thing. Uh, and we all share it. Uh, we, we got it, we got a thing going on there. Um, and we all enjoy the same kind of things. It's cool to see. Uh, where we all have kind of similar funny bones, really. Um, and we itch for this stuff. We eat up this shit. We really do. We eat up British stuff. We eat up every, a lot of cultural stuff, right? But we, we like our own stuff, too. We like our own stamp on it. But we, we like our own originality. But we have no problem with, with derivations. We have no problem with borrowing. We have no problem with, uh, with uh, legitimate influence. Uh, you know, think of the great blues guitarists and their great influences. You know, that whole chain of influences. You know, um, and then you think of the great concert pianists and the great uh, lasting legacy uh, lasting legacy of classical music and performance on the concert stage. Um, and so legacies, uh, the Brits are good at that. Tradition, you know, cemented in traditions that you hope stay and stick together. Um, we're trying to preserve old languages uh, that are very... Uh, uh, hard to come by right now, you know. Uh, the languages uh, are languishing. Languages are languishing. Some of these, some of these very, very 
uh, isolated populations um, have these incredible languages and uh, we are studying them. Uh, we're studying them all over the world. These very um, exotic languages that we're really just recently discovering. And it must be cool for these people to come across uh, uh, these anthropologists coming across from the States, for example, going into the Amazon forest, let's say, or, or in, the, in the real depths of Africa, uh, uh, you know, on the Serengeti, maybe. Maybe it's just that kind of thing, you know? Uh, maybe it's more towards the south of Africa. Uh, and maybe they find this tribe, um, these tribes that um, are few in population, but they are holding on to, because they don't know anything better. They've just been living. They've been just lamping, you know? They've been just lamping, um, and they've been just uh, uh, living, just living. I used to work with a copywriter, Kara. Uh, she was great so talented but she was fun and um, we developed a kind of a, a, a friendship that was fun and I kind of miss her but uh, when I would call her uh, every so often she'd pick up I'd say hi how you doing and she'd say living I thought it was like so like at the time I don't know what I felt about it but when I thought about it later on I thought it was like perfect it's like the perfect response. Because we are, we're all living. We're all living, you know. We're living in our house with our pets, maybe. Um, uh, a couple of critters running around the house, maybe. Uh, and uh, we got that, but we come down to the living room with the fireplace going, fake or otherwise, uh, in the corner with the TV uh, screen black and you're deciding what you want to watch what channel you want to put on uh, on the remote um, me I'm lazy I like to use the remote it works for me <laughs> oh man I want to take a sip of coffee okay wow that's good that's robust and beanie as my brother Claude would say on our hiking trips. Uh, when we, uh, great memories of just being by the, by the water, by the lake on a cold winter day and taking out our coffee and making our cowboy coffee, yep. And it come out really, really ro robust and beanie. And we enjoyed that. We enjoyed that little stop. Made all the difference on our hike. Made all the difference on a hike. I, I could drink coffee throughout most of my hike. Then I had to switch to water, good old H2O, to get the hydrating going. I think you get hydrated with coffee because it's mostly water, right? Um, but I know the coffee has a counteracting diuretic effect. It's known for that. Um, it's the unfortunate side effect. Um, reports... Uh, for, uh, reports, of course, of, of stomach issues with drinking too much coffee. But I moderate mine. I do drink lately. I've been drinking for quite a while now. I've been drinking later in the afternoon. I make a th second. Not often, but I do sometimes make a third pot. 
But aside from my coffee, uh, uh, eschewing that, uh, and the I wanted to say the words is what the impotences was, those fun British words that they give us um, as a gift. You know, we trade. We trade with these countries. We trade. They get stuff from us. We get stuff from them. You know, they give us the Beatles, you know. We give them other examples. We give them other examples, pop, pop culture, culturally. Our cultural exchanges are, are very important. You know, our cooperation, our collaborations uh, with, between us is very important. Jesus Christ, superstar. Who are you? Who do you think you are? And what do you think you are? Who do you think you are, really? Well, he is freely proclaimed that he is the Son of God. But it's Jesus Christ superstar, certainly. A phenomenon, a phenomenon that occurred and we witnessed uh, and we rocked down to and rocked onto and rocked up to, in this case, uh, up to the heavens. We really lived, we proclaimed this rock music and we quickly, quickly absorbed it uh, and, and ate it up, uh, certainly. Uh, we really, really got into it. Uh, we, we rocked on, we really did. Uh, we rocked out, whatever you want to say. Um, but it was it was a rock opera in the real classic sense. Um, it's a great work, but it was a great recording. Um, the whole experience, the, the album, you know, I was lucky to grow up in the vinyl era. Uh, my parents had vinyl. Um, they had famously uh, their selection of, of opera classics on various great classical uh, labels. Um, they, um, they, uh, they also accept, they loved and enjoyed popular music, um, um, that they liked. Ferranti and Teicher, um, I recently, I think I still might even have it actually, miraculously, Ferranti and Teicher album in, um, my, um, rather orderly stack um, in my record case. So, um, <clears throat> but I also, uh, I also have, thankfully, um, other albums up in my attic space upstairs. Um, and I've got all my rock and, and what I was grow, what I grew up with in, in my early, into my early thirties before the advent of the compact disc. Uh, I readily accepted, and uh, I like being the first adopter. Um, I was pretty good with that, with the audio kind of things, componentry, and I, I was one of the first ones to have, uh, for certainly the first one I knew of, to have uh, a CD player. In a, I think it was around 83, 84. And my first CD that I bought with that, I might have bought another one with it, but the one I remember um, is Stevie Ray Vaughan 
and that one is, um, I can't forget the name of the album, and I, I might be brain farting on that one, so please excuse me for that. But it was definitely TV Ray Vaughan, uh, Soul to Soul. Yes, Soul to Soul. I think it was a good first choice. It sounded remarkably very well. Remarkably really good. Just really good sound. Uh, I was impressed instantly what my little sharp, inexpensive sharp um, uh, CD player, uh, small little thing. Um, and, uh, but it was cool. I was, I really was like the first one to really kind of have it, have one. And, and we, we checked them out. And then I was upstairs and I'd be on my um, Bentwood rocker, like my meme had in her place where she lived, a uh, Bentwood rocker. And I would, I would just rock back and forth. I love those Bentwood rockers. What a great concept that is. That's up there with the Adirondack chair in a rocking sense. You know, uh, that's with the front porch hillbilly rocking chair. Uh, that's with the, the rocker that goes back and forth, right? And the cat's tail is synchronized so, so he doesn't, um, he doesn't get, uh, uh, his tail doesn't get pinched by the, um, by the, the back of the rocking chair rung. And his tail keeps going away as, as Granny rocks back. Uh, she rocks back and, and, then, and then his tail goes under. And then his tail comes out. Then it goes under. And then one fateful morning after 18, 18 mornings of perfect timing by this cat under the rocking chair by the knitted rug on the, by the fireplace, uh, archetypical grandmother rocking on her chair um, and the kitty, the kitty's there and he's He's really a good, good synchronizer. He could be a great rock drummer, for instance, uh, certainly. But right now he chooses to lie down and be comfortable and cozy. And then he does it really good for 18 days, but then the 19th day, that fateful day, his tail, right? And you can use this as a metaphor for life if you want. His tail, um, his tail, doesn't synchronize, unfortunately. It's off. It's off. It's off the beat. It, it's doing the. It's doing an upbeat. It's kind of just goofy. He just does it one day. He just decides it. He doesn't decide to do it. He doesn't decide to do it. It's involuntary. Yeah, his tail's just going there. But he's usually in control of his tail, right? Cats are in control of their different signs they show us with their tails, with their ears, with their eyes. But with their tails is what we're talking about. And then Granny goes back, and she doesn't know, Granny's knitting. You know, Granny's having her cup of tea and knitting by the fireplace, and she planned it all. She baked pies and tots. She decided to make tots, and she very accomplished and made some beautiful, delicious pies to share with her loving family, right? And she just rocks back unknowingly. And guess what? 
the loudest screech that she's ever heard in her life from any animal, captive or otherwise. She's been to loud zoos, lions roaring, and she has never heard a sound emanate as loudly from an animal, and a rather small animal at that. Um, and uh, she jumped out of her out of her rocker. You know, she's a spry, a spry older uh, older lady. And she, she got up there and, and she came back up and arched her back, back straight and turned around. And where was the cat? Nowhere to be found. Uh, and then she'd, she'd have to go look around and she'd go around where the staircase was. Nope. And then she'd go in the kitchen. Nope. Nope. Nowhere around. He's, he's like totally... He's, you know, maybe he's licking his tail right now, you know? You know, maybe it's one of those kind of magical cat self-therapies where they go off for an hour or so, or half a day even, you worry about them. But then, then they come out all right. You know, they come back out on stage. They come back out on stage with us and become our companions again. They always are our companions, right? But they come and they're actively being companion-y. You know, um, and uh, it's a really cool thing. So that's the true experience of that was and is still, and it holds up really well still, Jesus Christ Superstar. Uh, particularly the album, particularly the album. My cousin Andy brought his family to see Jesus Christ Superstar uh, on stage, and that was an incredible thing. They immensely enjoyed that. Um, and uh, I think they were, the spotlight went on them or something. They were, they were singled out. It was really cool. Uh, really fun event for them. And uh, it was a, it's a great, it's a great, uh, Broadway is, of course, the, is the inspiration to the movie. I remember the great feature release um, early 1970s. I think it may have been 1971. I'm going to pin it at 1971 when the movie came out, the feature. And boy, what a great production that was with the school bus coming in to a desert scene. Um, the uh, No, everything about that movie is really pretty cool. Um, we, we, we're digging the hippie thing. Uh, we, we were into it, but we really enjoyed the music. It really came down to the music and the dancing, the dancing, very danceable. It's a rock opera, after all. Uh, I like that whole format idea. I like, I like opera, I like rock. I like rock opera, right? A lot of teenagers uh, uh, didn't dis, did not dis opera. Uh, and classical music, but particularly opera. But generally, rock was the way to go. That's where that's the route I took and kind of like honed in on. Um, overlooking some bands for others, certainly because I had I, I played favorites uh, unabashedly so because I grew to love my favorites. Um, I got so many examples of my favorite bands growing up. I'm very fortunate to say. Um, I have much, I'm very greatly appreciated, appreciate, 
I greatly, I greatly appreciate um, the memories I have, and in particular, the memories of listening to music, um, handling the album, uh, 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 opening the album, uh, just soaking everything in, and then you're and you're you're looking at the album while you're playing it, right? And you can't believe the sound, and you, you know, it's it's all new. It's all new. It's all. It's a concept album, after all. It's it's supposed to be a whole new thing. It's in the spirit of Mozart. You know, he always wanted new, new, new. He he always was thinking of his next. Um, I don't know if he even looked back. He's one of those not look back kind of guys. I like to look back and see my work. I kind of enjoy now more. Before I put my music, my stuff away, my art, all my art files and. My, my big flat files for some of my bigger stuff um, and my photography stuff. And that was all, it still is in a closet, but I recently, I was glad to actually go through that. I think I needed to do that as therapy. Go, I pretty much examined everything I had, took inventory, uh, even sorted it out and put a lot of it, uh, most of it fit in bank, uh, banker boxes, most of my art, my studio stuff. My personal stuff or my stuff I did for work um, or school, um, for that matter. So all the photography stuff, everything was crammed in the closet, unlooked at, unstudied, unthunk about, overlooked. Uh, and for, I'm going to say, oh, I don't know, at least 20 years, I'm going to say that com pretty confidently, you know, uh, for the most part. You know, maybe I went in to get something or check something out. I, maybe I was curious. But I guess I was not curious enough to check my art school work. I, I think that happens with a lot of people. Mozart is the example I was saying because I think he was the kind of guy that just, with the, with the prolific nature of him, for lack of a better word, um, he, he was just... Uh, he was just uh, unbelievably phenomenally productive person unphenomenally productive person uh, musician composer um, uh, from childhood uh, a prodigy from childhood bantied about uh, like a china doll pampered yet sternly directed by his his father especially uh, but both of his parents I think were task mastery using his genius uh, profiting from it but probably with with love I'm sure I know he had close relationships with his family um, luckily because uh, I hear reports uh, we've heard reports of a rather bleak existence but I know he he had many 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 joyous times because we get to witness and hear gloriously in full fidelity over our systems, our, our stereo systems, these great recordings, or in our car, you know, just reveling, listening to these glorious symphonies and concerti, you know. 52 symphonies I looked up recently. He actually composed, they're discovering 52, uh, top Google story, look it up. Uh, uh, Mozart. When did he start? When not? When did he start composing? All the, I don't. I did want to check that out. Um, but I. The obvious question was quantity. How many? 
how many, because we all want to know how many symphonies. We all kind of know he wrote the famous and many, many much loved and uh, old war horse, really. Mozart's one of the old war horses, even though he was, we only remember him as a young man, really, relatively. He died at, at 35, I believe. And, um, and that must have been a sad day for, many, for, for some people. Uh, there were depictions of him in a pauper's grave, and that could be very, very likely true. It's, that's definitely a Googleable, a Googleable lookup. A Googleable lookup would be that. But I wanted to know first and foremost how many symphonies and how many piano concerti in particular. So the piano concerti uh, also numbers uh, many, uh, many concerti, uh, but I'm not sure the exact number. But I know it's quite a bit. I know it's probably the most of, for the most part, I think it's the most of uh, any composer of that era, certainly, of certainly that era of, of, uh, of early classical music. Mozart heralded the classic, and we know that. There's just pure, raw examples of it right in front of us that we can listen to again on our systems or in our car or in, over our headphones. Um, and then we can enjoy it, but we know that it's, it's, we know that this is number 26. Um, I was listening to it the, yesterday with my sister-in-law, Janet, in her car. Uh, as we were riding a boat, panting a boat, or riding a boat, driving a boat in, in, in her area of Warwick. Uh, and enjoying Mozart, uh, Piano Concerto, number 26. A very lively lively concerto and uh, I always love the dynamics between the piano in this case being a piano concerto and the conductor conducting and the orchestra certainly the orchestra uh, and the, the whole interplay it's really cool to see you know I like it when the piano does its uh, its its cadenzas but I also like it all cadenzas, and I also like the when when we do the playing with the orchestra, the swell of the orchestra, right? I like that whole vibrancy. Um, you, you see that in, in a particular piece would be Beethoven's Great Emperor con Piano Concerto, since we're on the subject of piano concertos. My father loved the piano concerto. He was fond of it. He was fond of the organ toccata and fugue. He played many a great composer's fugues, very, very deftly, uh, with great, great sound and great, because he played on some great pipe organs. And uh, I got to just revel and, and listen to it gloriously in the churches, in our great local churches here. So definitely uh, the mix was there, the influences were there, the rock opera, the phenomenon that is known as Jesus Christ Superstar, uh, a valid era and time, a real, uh, real timeline uh, item to definitely highlight. And uh, not quite the significance of Woodstock, 
but certainly up there as far as popular culture acceptance and influence. And think of how many musicals, for example, were influenced. Uh, think about how many studio performers went back into the studios and re reworked and retooled because they got some fresh insight and inspiration, right? Inspiration from uh, the from the likes of Lloyd and Weber with this uh, musical masterpiece, musical masterpiece that burst onto the scene, and we just ate it up. Like I said earlier, when it came out, because I was only about 11 or so when that came out. Yeah, and I was I was grooving to it right off on the first play. We just we just we just love that. I brought it over to my our friends Mike Davins. We played it up on his stereo, and we danced up there. We had a great old time. It just brought everybody together. You know, um, there's there's things in life that we have that we kind of have traditions that we kind of hold on to and readily do because we enjoy them and it reaffirms why they are. It's a testament to why um, it's, it's, it, it goes back to that revolving, that revolving door, a house of mirrors uh, effect. Um, certainly. I'm going to take another sip of coffee. Excuse me. Mm-mm. All right, that's good. That's robust and beanie. Um, and Jesus Christ Superstar. Yeah, 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 groovy. It was just groovy. The movie was phenomenal. The blue sky, I just remember the blue sky and desert, but the blue sky, really, the album cover is just perfect. Um, the cinematography in the movie is just great. The performances, of course. The direction, uh, but the music and the dancing, but the music... The music is really key. It's a musical. It's a rock opera. It's a rock opera. Equally, equal weight on both of those. Uh, because there's classical elements brought in. But I like the liberal approach they take. I like that freewheeling approach of the caravan, right, through the desert. Uh, and then it, 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 in the form of, of a, of a, of a overpacked uh, school bus or two coming in or three you know and I don't remember I don't remember the array but uh, impressive influx of people gathered for one purpose to set up a, a stage a setting a backdrop set pieces certainly with this uh, dynamic piece of uh, marvel of filmmaking and uh, musical uh, presentation. You know, these are presentations to us for our total enjoyment, total focused on our enjoyment. Hollywood is totally focused on our total enjoyment and enrapture. Uh, say what you will about today's popular movies. Um, I eschew many of them for obvious reasons. Uh, but there is a lot of good, and there always has been, and there probably always will be, I would imagine, great examples of filmmaking. Readily available to us, streaming or otherwise, broadcast, whatever, what have you. You could just happen upon it. Serendipitous. You know, you discover a great movie that you didn't even know about, and it's recent. You know, within the last five years, 
And you can't believe this movie, how well-crafted it is, how, how it follows tradition. Even, even Quentin Tarantino, his brilliance is just off the charts. My brother Claude and I were talking him at length about some of his particular recent movies, actually. Um, and uh, just really, really kind of like incredible uh, pieces. I always, I always come back, of course, to Pulp Fiction and Reservoir Dogs, which I'd like to see again. Um, these are nasty movies, but they're cleverly disguised. There's Hitchcockian influence, certainly. There's certainly a Hitchcockian uh, uh, influence in Tarantino uh, and then there's also the classic composition I think he he really he he really studied these great he really is one of those ones that soaked it in uh, and you know had the milk of the nipple uh, figuratively speaking put in and all this sort of this sucking in and absorption I'm sure early in life he had a passion or he, he had a he real um, love to kind of like make movies, just make movies, you know, be a filmmaker someday, you know. Um, and, and, he, and he garnered all that influence. Oh, a lot of, he, he watched a lot of movies. He's got to have watched a lot of movies. I'm sure, I'm sure all those great movie makers, they all look at examples and it's cool in, to hear them in interviews talk about works that un, are very unlikely that you would think that they would totally not even want to even check out, that they'd have absolutely no interest in even going there, and yet they're interested in this, and maybe they're making a new film like that. Uh, you know, maybe they're being faithful and they're making them, maybe they're going to make it a complete offshoot and do something, a total different spin on it. You know, because it's all about originality. We're all about originality these days. You know, um, we want original. We want to be entertained. It comes back to, we just, the, the Hollywood makes it, makes their movies for us to be totally enthralled and entertained as much as possible. And they'll use every means to do that. Uh, they'll use special effects. They'll, they'll hire the best actors. They'll have the best ensemble. They'll get the best single actors, um, the, the, the best actors that come up on the first titles sequence, um, and then um, all the storyline. But you're interested in the actors and the performers. Uh, the, you're interested in the sets. You're, you're interested in, so you soak it all in, right? Um, it's there all for us to see. You know, um, and we we enjoy it uh, at home, or we enjoy it in the theater, uh, and and we all really kind of like get into it. It's all pretty groovy. It's all pretty groovy, and and the groovy example was this early '70s uh, onslaught. Uh, that we really, uh, really liked and, and really got into. Um, and then the example is, of course, um, uh, uh, Jesus Christ Superstar, which seemed to come out of nowhere. It made it just, it, that's how fast a splash it made. I mean, that, this would be considered 
one of the all-time splashes. Um, we didn't have internet back then. We didn't have social media. We didn't have instant communication. It wasn't the inf inf information age yet. The stories weren't even written yet. The experiences didn't even occur yet. Uh, we hadn't soaked up those new mediums in media. Um, and, but we had, we had our vinyl, we had our, our playback. We had the power of the playback. You know, the old, the old, uh, I think of the old, the old, um, we think of the old state, the old lady coming in to look at a record in a record shop. I'm using an old lady again. I don't know why. What's that going on with that? No, she's an old lady, but she, she likes to shop and she likes particularly the rec, the local record store. It's, it's circa 1941. It's just before the war. And she walks into her local record shop, Sam's Record Shop. They were very straightforward back then. No sense of irony. We hadn't been, we weren't ironic yet. We weren't an ironic culture yet. Uh, and so she, it was Sam's. It was Sam's Record Shop plainly on bold letters as you came in over the door. Uh, he had musical instruments in the front window to give his record store some musical appeal from the curb. You know, and you parked your Ford sedan in front there, let's say. You know, and then you stepped out and, and in, in, in you came and it was warm and you were able to sit down in a, in a nice uh, wood-lined booth like a telephone booth, and they were, had a whole bunch of them lined up on a wall in the back. Yeah, you, you stepped in, you sat on the wood bench like you're in a confessional, but instead it played, uh, you suggested different samples of music or maybe you had access to the record and you brought it in and played it, uh, and you listened and you, you sampled it, right? And you checked it out. And this old lady decided on uh, Chopin. She wanted some Chopin. She wanted some ambience. She was a great entertainer at home. She was a known baker. Her baked goods were, were known uh, in, her in her countryside of England. We were speaking about in England on, on the previous segment. I do devoted an entire main segment uh, to England, certainly, with its culture and its influence. And, uh, but she's in uh, Sussex, and it's got a beautiful, uh, a beautiful record store. Very nostalgic already, and it still stands. And they've tried to keep it because it's such an, was an important fixture. They really were very successful. They had a good committee committed to it. And she's there in, in this... Uh, beautiful uh, record store with the musical instruments in the front, the horns, the, uh, the accordions, uh, right? And then she walks in and she's surrounded by uh, more musical instruments. And then you've got in the back and the middle wall uh, in front of the clerks on the counter, a long, long counter, and behind is all the sheet music 
all the sheet music you can say. You can bring it into a room where the piano player plays it for you. Or maybe you're a pianist yourself, an accomplished one. You know, maybe you're pretty well known, right? It's kind of pretty cool. And you go in and you want to you want to play a Chopin piece. Maybe it's the same one that the lady's interested in. Maybe it was on the radio recently on, on NBC on one of their classic programs, classical programs that comes on on Sunday afternoon at three, for example. You know, maybe they slotted a three o'clock time slot, you know, and they, they had the Chopin. It was all about Chopin that, that day on the classical hour, on the classical hour on NBC radio in 1941 she she heard it he was playing it in his house he heard it on the porch and he was reminded of it because he had heard it before but she had she had just she was making an even greater thing she was making a new discovery like i had with the grateful dead that would be that would be a perfect example for me uh and that whole experience that i've had and still enjoy to them uh still enjoy them uh, and, uh, but with Chopin, uh, this etude in particular, a short, rather short, compact piece of Chopin, Frédéric, um, and Polish, French, French, Polish, that kind of groove going on. Um, and you were playing and you were putting the needle in the groove and she, the guy put it on for her because she was a little shaky, but she still enjoyed music, and that was so important in her life, because she's always enjoyed music. She taught piano to the kids in the neighborhood in her little cottage that she used to live in. And she brought her, she's still playing on the exact same piano in a new place, in a beautiful little condominium, actually, a two-bedroom condominium. Two and a half, because there's a little side guest room serendipitously put in there that she newly discovered when she went in there to check with her nephew that brought her because her nephew was the only one available in the family that could take her because she can't drive anymore. But she stepped out on that, on that beautiful morning, cold and crisp, but beautiful, crisp, blue day morning. She stepped out from her Ford business sedan that was her husband's that died a year earlier and she was and she was 82 but still and importantly ever so enjoyed admired all musicians she had a passion for organ fugue she had a passion for cor sacred choral music she was um she was devout she went to mass on sunday every sunday she did not miss church mass the high mass when she was younger, the long high mass, and then the shorter present-day uh, mass that we have. Um, and but she still goes. She still devotes and takes time, uh, maybe a little out of obligation, but also of free will. She enjoys going to mass. She enjoys going to mass. So... That's with her in Mass. But right today, on this Saturday afternoon, she's buying a record. And she's gonna, she buys the Chopin, she walks out, goes back to her car, and 
watches the traffic very carefully, and then there's a little bit of frozen snow and ice by the door, and a lovely gentleman comes by, a good Samaritan, and makes a lovely gesture to help her into the car, and then she gets the car started. It starts right up. It always was a dependable car, you know? Her husband always told her, uh, Fred always told her that the car uh, started up like a charm every morning, cold, hot, whatever condition. Uh, just an all-around faithful car. He, he, he called it his good luck car because a lot of things happened for him. They had a very good life. They had a very good life. He traveled a lot. Uh, he traveled a lot. But she has such fond memories. She's left with these great memories, right? And she remembers they listened to classical music. And they didn't listen to Chopin until later in life. And they be both beautifully discovered it. One Saturday morning, another Saturday morning, earlier in their lives, they put on their record at exactly 2 o'clock in the afternoon, on Saturday afternoon, on an April glorious, beautiful afternoon with a blue sky as they looked out their rather generous front, win uh, front windows of their uh, spacious living room in, in mid-century modern decor. And they were happy. You know, they were happy. And they were together sitting on the couch just listening to this glorious... Uh, performer, playing, deftly, executing, faithfully, reading, reading Chopin. Uh, the spirit of Chopin, uh, Chopin would have played this way, we would say, maybe. And it was lovely and flowering and thought-provoking and evocative, evocative. Chopin is evocative music. It could be classified as that, as a form of it, evocative, certainly. Uh, new age, even, really. If you really examine it from a total musical perspective, um, he, he translates totally. Uh, Beethoven translates so much to rock and roll, so much to it. Uh, the ABAB, of course. Uh, and that whole structure. Uh, faithfulness, tradition, influence again, influence. It's a good word, influence. Um, just back to vinyl and the, 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 uh, the whole effects that we had with musical Godspell. We enjoyed that immensely. Godspell came out around the same time. Um, Jesus Christ Superstar. The Big Kahuna, uh, just the feature movie was just incredible. Um, they got it right. They really did get it right. And I think it holds up today. Um, I like the whole hippie groove thing. I was into it then, I'm into it now. Uh, kind of magical, kind of magical, colorful, lively certainly. And very melodic and has all the elements of just great music. It's just... It's there evident, you know, it's not argued. We're not gonna even go there. We don't even need to argue it.
We don't need to get comparative here. There's no favorite band. There's no favorite genre that's got to be accepted by everybody. That's why there's so many niche, niches, right? For good or for bad? I don't know. Um, I don't know. Uh, but I think there's good in it to some effect. Uh, we are a country of excess. We do have sub, sub, sub genres of things. We specialize. We love to specialize, of course. In our medical profession, of course, it's self-evident. Specialists, you know, it's cool when you can get a general practitioner that can juggle everything with, with equal adeptness. And I'm lucky to have a doc. I'm grateful to have, I'm grateful to God to have a doctor like my doctor. Um, he's just, he's just wonderful. He, and he's great for a lot of members of my family. And we all love, we all love him. He's just really great. I mean, talk about bedside manner. But our musical enjoyment, our musical, you know, Elton John with his musical ventures um, and his, his Appalachian appreciation for the cowboy culture, the, the Old West uh, that he evoked in some of his great earlier uh, Bernie Taupin inspired um, and collab <coughs> collaborated word. I love that word collaboration and what it is and what it means. <coughs> Excuse me. Collaboration. Good word. Uh, good word. <laughs> and, and it's that. It's musicality. Self-evident. All these guys are great. All these guys are great. Crosby, Stills, and Nash. Great. Creedence Clearwater Revival. Great. Uh, faithful to genre. Um, I like, I like the cross pathing. I like the crosses, the cross mixes, the hybrids. I like fusion. I love fusion. I love funk. I love funk. I love bass. I love tight. I like a lot of us do. Um, it's natural. We like the rhythm. I'm a drummer. I'm a percussionist by nature. I can play keyboard. I learned Thankfully for my dad, he gave me a lot of foundational aspects and the importance of chords. I learned the importance of cordage. We played gleefully on the piano, both of us um, really kind of like playing some good, some good fun stuff. Uh, it was really actually fun when I think about it. I'm glad I had those memories of playing the piano with my dad, really. Wow, it's precious, precious. Those are great moments and times that you just can't, you just, you know, you wouldn't want to take back. You want to, what you want to do is beam on down to that time again and relive them. Simply, simple as that. For lack of a better word, relive. You want to relive the experience as best as you can. And you kind of can go there. As I get older, I can, I can visualize to some accuracy relatively in a wonderful, wonderful way, in a real cool way. You know, a real cool way. The liveliness of Jesus Christ Superstar, though. Just getting back to my original premise. Um, it is one of our great musical and closing. We, we, we soaked it all in. Old and young alike. Every member of the family uh, grooving and dancing and singing 
uh, joyously to these great tunes um, given to us as a gift that came out of nowhere, uh, really, seemingly, and into our lives, and how we accepted it, how we accepted it. Again, with the example of, of us going over each other's house and, and, and sharing our album with each other. And then we later on that week, we'd grab a bus and go to Providence and Beacon Records. Um, um, and then uh, the go-to place for vinyl in town. And you'd pick up, uh, you'd pick up, you'd pick up a copy. Yeah, you got your own copy of Jesus Christ Superstar. You were happy. You had the money for music. You had your musical budget allotment um, and some loose change. And you you took the bus. You had enough for your bus fare and back. Had to make sure you got back home your, so you could enjoy your album. Uh, and in my case, I made a lot of those trips. One of them must have included Jesus Christ Superstar. I don't know if I bought it, but we had our own copy. The family, we had the family, Massey family copy of the Jesus Christ Superstar. And it was, it was, it was euphemistically worn out. You know, it really was. Uh, and, and it was in fact worn out, I would imagine. I know it was. I would imagine we've got two copies of it. We had to get a second copy. Uh, and we, uh, we played it for a long time. It had a good run. It had legs. This, this had legs. And it shows you an example of something that uh, appears out of nowhere, is a phenomenon, produces some great talent, and you, new household names are quickly established. The good housekeeping approval is employed and, and uh, verifications are made, you know? And meanwhile, us, the public, disseminate it. And, and we soak it all in and we listen to it, we enjoy it, uh, we sing to it, we dance to it. Here it is, here's my mantra revealed to you folks out there on this podcast of Talk Me Some Art and other stories. Let me do my self-identification, my self-ID as they call it, or my ID as they call it in the biz. Um, and Talk Me Some Art and Other Stories. If you wanna initialize that, it doesn't really work um, as one of those words, I'm sorry to say, but let's say, let's run through it because it's kind of long. So, okay, so it's Talk Me Some Art and Other Stories is the title of my podcast and has been since I started podcasting. It's my first and only podcast, but more importantly, it's called Talk Me Some Art and Other Stories. All right, so T, M, S, A, R, uh, no, I'm sorry, A, O, S, 
Um, doesn't quite work as a word like that, but it's still cool to have fun with that. But anyway, uh, that is the name of my podcast, and I am proud to say, um, and I um, also, and my mantra is of late, but for, for a while now, for quite a while. And I put it away a little bit, a little bit of back, back memory storage, uh, RAM back there. I uh, put it away, uh, but um, it all fired back to me, uh, and I remembered the order of all the, every word. It's just single words, uh, single words, um, and here's the mantra. Okay. God, family, life, love, friends, pets, nature, faith, hope, peace, strength, and betterment. That's it. That's it. And I occasionally, you know, I might go days without forgetting to kind of like recall that. These are my little, these are my affirmation words. These are important words that I've adopted and, and arranged in such a fashion that I can readily index them and recall and, 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 and chant them in my own unique kind of way. I may even say them out verbally, which I do many times to myself. Uh, I don't normally broadcast that. I do remember um, uh, talking to Pierre and telling him, but I had modified it. I modified it. Uh, it's totally modifiable. There are certain uh, terms, certain particular words there that will have to start the order. Um, you know, those are the, the, the top words that we, we will have as a priority listing. But then as it gets midway through, uh, it gets, if I get midway through my mantra, uh, those words are all of equal rank. You know, they're, they're all on equal footing, uh, with the exception of those words that must come first, second, third, let's say, in the order of things. And, and really, that really speaking of which, those really are the order of things in my life. Those are really, that's the priority listing for me. Those are my, that's my underall goal objective for happiness. I think I might have found I think I might have found my own version, certainly, of a state of, of happiness. And it's a nice place. It's a nice place. And if we can have those places, um, and if we can, you know, if it can be prolonged, thankfully, you know, uh, we're gracious that we have the time that we can live on the earth, and especially the time that we can be happy you know, with enjoying music, like I was saying earlier, with music as an example, and dancing, and, and importantly, being with people and family.
in particular, your family, your loved ones, you know, the ones that live with you, the ones that have to live with you, there are challenges. There are challenges in life. Uh, we all have our stories, and they're all phenomenal, interesting, uh, uh, vindication, Jean of, Jean of Arc, Jean d'Arc level. Uh, um, and we're talking about sort of their own personal, they're, they're their own, they're their own, uh, they've got it pretty much together. Everybody wants to kind of have it together, don't we? Um, sometimes we don't have really control over it. But when we got the groove going, we kind of know it. You know, I always second guess myself. You know, I even ask sort of existential kind of questions to myself from time to time. You know, like, is the groove I'm in, is that what other people, I always want to know if I'm experiencing, I need to be reassured that I'm part of the human race and that I have a right to exist. I don't know why that's always been into me. I don't know why I've always had to sort of prove it. Is that something that's built into it, into us? Do we all have to have our prove, prove something, you know, agenda or otherwise? You know, it could be organic. You know, do we all fulfill our dreams organically? Is that, a, is that the achieved goal? Whether we're, whether we're a graphic designer in the studio or whether we have a bike shop, a bike shop where we fix and we specialize in mountain bikes. And we've been there since 1990. Yeah, over 30 years. And the, the clock keeps going and the store thrives. It's got all the latest merchandise. You can roll in there. It's still got the old hardwood floor from Eddie, who ran the store until 1980. I'm sorry, 19, uh, excuse me, let me get my dates right, until uh, until uh, 1998, I think, 1998, and then the ownership's changed, and it's the present-day ownership. He's older now, Dan, and he, he worked uh, for his dad, but now it's just, uh, it's just um, Mike's bike shop from his grandfather, his grandfather's style. That's how long the store's been there. Everything you need, all the latest, all the latest brands, all the latest, hippest, coolest bikes, raddest, whatever you want to call it. Uh, you know, uh, a thing that you would come in, a showpiece, of course, a, a halo vehicle, in this case, in the form of a bicycle. Uh, it happens to be this month. They proudly have it on display because it just came in from Ohio, and they're one of the first stores on the East Coast to get it. Yep, it moved from their Indiana, they're based, but they have an Ohio factory, and their Ohio factory shipped it, uh, FOB, directly to them, and they had to wait. There was a delay. There was a part strike, but there was a delay, and then he got it, and he started immediately having fun with it. And he bought it at, he bought it at Mike's, uh, Mike's uh, third generation now bike shop. 
So Dan's running the show now. Eddie ran it before him. Mike was Eddie's father. Mike was Eddie's father. Yep. And but Dan was Dan is still is uh, Eddie is still uh, is is Mike the founder uh, Mike's grandfather uh, grandson <laughs> grandson there got tripped up there uh, so we're having fun thinking about the bike shop um, we're in the bike shop right now yep and it's in it's close to downtown it's close to downtown uh, you might have one where you live in your in your general area where you bounce about doing your errands you always wanted to go into this really kind of cool uh, you like the outside curb appeal of this store it attracts you but you've never really had a chance to go in because you were really too busy you didn't want to be late for your 9.30 meeting you usually you usually telecommuted and did a lot of Zoom a lot of, a lot of Zoom calls that were becoming annoying the company wanted you there at the meeting of course they got every right as their your employer and you were faithfully trying to make your appointment but you went to the Starbucks right there in the plaza and the CVS is on the other side and the Walgreens is across the street get the picture uh, there's, a, there's an Arby's just down the road and a Chick-fil-A at the main intersection where there's sort of been some rash of accidents. Like the record store I talked about earlier um, in the previous segment, this is, we're talking the bike shop, the local dependable bike shop, Dan. Yep. He has help, but a lot of times he's there alone, and he can handle it. Uh, it's a busy store, but it's got his slow times. That gives him a chance to try out all the cool new bikes that come in, which is exactly what I would do. I worked at a hardware store, and I always liked to see the cool things coming in through the door, through our loading dock. And uh, as we'd unload it, I'd really be wanting to really unpack it, but I'd have to help the true value delivery guy uh, with his big 18-wheeler um, carefully parked up to our loading dock, you know, um, and, and uh, checking out all these cool things that came in. So, uh, and then the bike shop had that, those moments of kind of wonderment when unwrapped and they assembled these really cool bikes. In my day, it was Gary Fisher, specialized, specialized, uh, it was a big brand, Trek, Trek, uh, a huge player now, was up and coming. Um, uh, it was it was an up and coming, innovative brand that specialized in aluminum frames, but had their steadfast, although rather uh, lanky or, I should say, uh, cumbersome aspect of weight. Uh, my bike, it was a Trek 830, and it was 31 pounds, which is doable. I could, I could handle that. My bike presently is 30. Uh, the one pound does make a difference. Um, it's, it's beyond perceivable. It definitely makes a difference on your off-road or on-road riding, which I do right now 
just because of practical reasons, I do uh, certainly on-road on riding. Um, and I try to be careful on the road. I try to really stay away from the busy roads for the most part. And of course, around here, in this part of New England, southern New England in particular, it's, it's really difficult to find those kind of bikeable roads, definitely. I just want to take a sip of coffee, folks. So Dan's running Mike's, his grandfather's, named um, uh, Mike's Bike Shop. And, uh, and then I come through the door, or you come through the door, right? And it's sort of like a hardware store, you know? It's confined. It's got the old wood floor, of course. It actually really needs to get replaced, but you don't want to. It's got rounded. Everything's all worn and dull, you know? It's well-trafficked. You know, maybe they want to advertise that. Yeah, sure, I'd leave them there. I'd leave all that there. Maybe there's a new addition. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, he's got a new addition. Eddie put it in. His father put it in, Dan's father. So Dan runs it now, and everything's cool. Everybody loves Dan. He's dependable. He'll go to your house. Um, he's got a cool truck that can bring back bikes. And Oh, yeah, he's got a whole... He's got two helpers that have, have, have other cool trucks that have his logo on it. And he's proud of his, his little business that he's got there tucked into this corner um, in any town USA uh, and in my town. And I've gone into these cool bike shops. You know, uh, the smell of rubber, the smell of rubber the smell of rubber meeting the road. So Dan goes out for a romp on the latest bike. He just wants to check out this bike. They built it in the back. Some of the other guys came in late at night and built it for him so that he could have it for a morning sale that he promised to a customer. He had promised the bike. It was really late in shipping. The customer was almost ready to pull out. It was very happy with everybody. It wasn't that. Uh, the other cut, this customer just was going to pull out because it was a rather expensive, pricey bike. Uh, it, was, it was more than he could really afford. He wasn't even really sure. It was one of those typical scenes where he went home. Yeah, he went home and talked to the wife, you know, and the wife kind of messed things up because she, she kind of had her questions, which may have been very justifiable. She may have had every right to ask. And he was totally influenced by his wife, of course. You know, some husbands know what they want to get, and they're going to get it anyway. And those wives are cool. They don't even have to talk about it. She knows he's going to go pick up the bike. She knows he's going to go pick up the new car. You know, he's going to go get his new Chevy Blazer. Um, he's going to get his um, pickup truck. Yep. He's going to go get his new commercial vehicle. Yeah, brand new. Straight, FOB from the factory there. Oh, man, really cool. So the bike shop, though, the bike shop. And then you buy what you need to get, and you get what you need to buy. Um, and... Uh, like me, I had a, a toolbox, a tool shed, I should say, in the corner of my basement. 
Um, I need to get back in there um, and get it back to where I had it, where I was um, repairing my own mountain bike. And I enjoyed doing that. It was one of my pleasures. Um, I would almost take the bike apart uh, for fun. But usually it was a men uh, an adjustment or a mechanical concern where I need to bring it down to the basement and, and put it on the vise carefully with a towel um, uh, and then uh, just really have it good, sturdy, that I can work with it. And I was pretty good. I was pretty, I really enjoyed it. And it was, for the most part, self-taught. I'm sure I read some initial instructions on it, but I took it from there, and I could still take a bike apart. I could, I could easily take a mountain bike apart. Because as a kid, I loved, I was mechanically inclined, and I always liked taking apart things and putting them back together. Um, that was sort of the groove I was in back then. And it's rehashed. It's rehashed. So I want to get back in that tool shed. I definitely want to get back in that tool shed um, and uh, and in particular maybe even repairing my bike again that would be kind of cool that would be kind of cool um, I like I like the idea of the hardware store and we've all been in the old tin roof hardware store uh, and then uh, we all have been in the bike shop the bike repair shop um, uh, Mike's repair shop um, where you just bought a brand new bike and it is a mountain bike you always wanted to go mountain biking you've heard about it for the longest time some of your closest friends have always been doing it they've gone on really great trips to Vermont and elsewhere to go mountain biking they've gone across the country to go mountain biking they've taken their bikes in the back of their car you've seen them on many a highway Though that was that was their friends, yeah, and they they went out to California, to play Shawana Bay, and this is where they wanted to do, they wanted to do some Baja, hopping, you know, they wanted to do a little bit of that, they wanted to do some Sonoma wine country, they wine lovers, wine lovers, and they uh, they double joyed their trip on that one uh, with the wine exploring all the great wine vineyards of Sonoma County in particular and mountain biking in and around that area uh, and uh, going off-road a lot of off-road opportunities in Napa Valley and Son Son Sonoma Valleys uh, and all these great opportunities, all these, these great memories that are formed and formulated and acted out. Um, and uh, right out of the gate, you know. So they, they got their bike, and the guy, Dan's really happy at Mike's Bike Shop, back at Mike's Bike Shop. Suddenly, the entrance appears. To the house of horrors. You walk in with your friends. Already in a frenzy. Already a sense of chaos. <laughs> looms. As you walk down this short. Already mysterious looking. Corridor. 
as you take a right and enter what they've prepared for you. And you are totally at once transfixed. You're totally focused, right? You walk slowly through. You goof. And what's the first place you come up to? Just for a little bit of lightheartedness. Well, what I remember, my memories of the ones that we had in our area growing up, our, our great amusement parks that we had, fondly, memories of the, the Hall of Mirrors, of course. The Hall of Mirrors was your first mirror, your first entry, your first, your first section, your first room or rooms were, were tricky-dicky little mirrors, fun little novelty mirrors, right? And what a distraction. They were just really cool. And we enjoyed them. And they were all different, you know? Uh, we couldn't believe what we, we could make, all this different thing going on with the mirrors, you know? The Hall of Mirrors. There's also a Hall of Mirrors effect, I co I've coined it, if it hasn't already been coined that. Which I wouldn't doubt, doubt, because it's very elemental. It, 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 uh, let me try to even explain it because it really is very, um, I was thinking ethereal. That might be a good word. Um, there might be some better word to actually describe it. Um, and I tr always tried to go there and it's kind of cool to go there. Um, um, and, um, after I say all these ums in a row, uh, and us, as I just did then, uh, it's hard to not do that sometimes for me. I found it. But anyway, uh, the House of Mirrors, the Hall of Mirrors, the Hall, the Hall of Mirrors within the House of Horrors um, in your theme park. Park. And and so we had so much fun. And then we'd walk in um, to more serious affair. But we still had fun coming out. You know, we all had big grins on our, smiles on our faces when we came out. It was just fun. It was just fun. You know, we have these memories. We can relive them, right? Um, and you can go places. And you can take your mind, and we, we're thinking beings, right? Um, all life is thinking, all life. Birds make decisions and decide to do something in a split, 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 faster than we can even comprehend their decisions are made and acted out in speeds that we are amazed at, uh, typical velocities and speeds of things um, and duration, um, but particularly the the deaf the well the the abilities of these animals is just amazing amazing um, demonstrated to us in each and every day you know as we look at the reflections uh, and we enjoy we just look we we're really into it we're really really into it you know uh, and we're looking into this mirror 
this particular mirror that we're really kind of like, we like, I like this mirror and, um, and I can do this and that. And it's, it's, it is, it is a cool thing. It's, it's, what it is, is it's just your reflection. Yeah, it's a reflection. It's a reflection, folks. And it's a reflection on you. And it's having a little bit of fun on you at your expense. It's a personal thing, but you, you share it with others. You both are distorted in the same mirror. You both laugh at the same time. You know, uh, you reassure each other through that and through just, just having a great time. You're having the time of your life there. You just got some cotton candy. Uh, you just pigged out on some honey peanuts at the stand. Uh, you plunked down some chains to some chocolate bars. Uh, you are like sugared up. Like you, there's no tomorrow. You never had so much sugar in your life in one night. This kind of special night that kind of came out of uh, nowhere. Unex totally unexpected, folks. They weren't even going to go to the, the carnival. And they weren't even thinking of going to the Harish thing. They saw it. It was the first place. It's usually on the outskirts of these big theme parks, the horror one, because it's a real, real popular attraction. You know, it could be the most popular uh, non-ride uh, attraction in the amusement park, in the theme park. Large or small, there's always a house of horrors or a hall of horrors or whatever they want to call it. Horror show, whatever. Ours was the House of Horrors, and we dug it. It was pretty decent. We got we got spooked, you know, and we played. We got the ride in the back. We went through on a ride, one one that rode you through, and it was always cool. Uh, and let's talk about the Hall of Mirror or Hall of Mirrors effect. It's, it's when you think daily. It's how you incorporate it daily. And what it simply is, is closely related to the circle of life, but it's the concept that everything comes back at you, folks. Everything comes full swing at, at us, doesn't it? In our lives, things come and reoccur. You know, history kind of repeats itself, but more importantly, more importantly, um, and certainly, I like to use that word certainly of late, certainly, the word certainly, because it's a good word. But anyway, um, anyway, the, that it really comes back at you like as a, in a boomerang effect. Um, I like to kind of like think of that metaphor. It comes back at you. The House of Mirrors metaphor comes right back at you. So repeat that to yourself, simply. Everything comes back full circle. Everything comes back at you. Everything comes back at us in life, if we think about it. If we sit down and really kind of like look out the window maybe and think about it, contemplate. You know, it takes a little bit of focus, but it all comes together. Um, life does kind of do that to you. Um, kind of cool, kind of cool.
Um, I'm digging it. Um, it's just the way life is. It's it's what it is. Um, uh, I think there's a French term for it. Well, c'est la vie, right? Quite quite elegantly said, c'est la vie. I love that. I eat that shit up. You know, I did the previous segment about the Brits. At length, rather. I know I rambled on. I went off on my usual tangents. But I always steadfastly, as in the Brits, as in the way the Brits do it, came back to the original topic and my intent of picking up the mic and actually starting to talk this morning and make it... And, attempt to make a segment, um, which I gladly did. And I had fun talking about um, my, my knowledge base to share it with you uh, and in, in a real way where I could kind of like revisit it. And memories of my mom, of course, spurred a lot of this on. She was a great influence for us with this, as in many things. but. Uh, this is notable because we just had so many laughs and fun down in our rumpus room uh, here at Hunts Avenue. Uh, we had we had a real, you know, my cousin Andy just barging in like he always did, unannounced, totally. And we're all downstairs in the rumpus room, and I'm there, and my mom, and I'm like 12, and I'm sucking my thumb, uh, lying down. Yep, uh, this is it. This is what happened. Uh, I what I did a lot of times. Andy would come down. Uh, he would come make a little short, rather short walk uh, from his house on Menden Avenue, and come down to our house. And uh, the door was usually unlocked up there, and uh, he just came in freely, which was so cool with us. We had no problem with it. Uh, but he'd kind of come down quietly. I wouldn't hear him at the top of the stairs where you could see everybody. We were all down there for the most, most of us were there. Paul might have been pumping gas probably. No, not yet. He wasn't pumping gas yet. Cause I was only, I'm thinking I'm only about 12 here, but I still sucked my thumb. Uh, I was sort of ashamed of it. I was a closet thumb sucker. Yep, definitely. I was definitely that. I just sucked my thumb like there was no tomorrow. You know, uh, I sucked that thing away. Uh, I just was like a thumb sucker. And uh, my earliest memories is just sucking my thumb, you know. Uh, probably lying in the bassinet at two and a half, sucking my thumb, I'm sure of it. You know, turning beet red, crying, and, which I have a memory of, which I can't believe I have that early memory of looking at my arms and saying to myself, boy, I'm a red motherfucker, <laughs> you know? And um, my sister, Nikki, was right there. I remember her being there, my mom. I don't know if Renee, no, Renee wasn't born yet. What am I saying? God bless her. Renee wasn't born until 64. But anyway, uh, had fun with that little venture. It's so interesting. Um, it's such a phenomenon in your mind and you kind of know it subconsciously when you're when you're actually thinking that way and it's so it's such a such a way that it it's actually eluding me right now at the moment i'm sorry to say uh, i can't really even really explain we all have it 
we all have this sort of full circle realization, affirmation. Um, I don't even know if it's a comforting. I think it's a good positive thing. Yeah, it is a positive thing. It is a positive. It's part of a positive thinking mindset. You know, it's 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 really like it's that kind of thing. Um, and so totally eludes me. Totally eludes me, folks. But it is something I've experienced, uh, particularly of, of late, I would say. Um, it's the house of mirrors effect. <laughs>